What's up my fellow ambitious poker players and welcome to the Mechanics of Poker podcast in which me, Renee, aka The Wacko and Adam Carmichael deconstruct high stakes poker players, figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition. If you are ambitious about making more progress in your poker career, go over to their site, pokerambition.com and find out which service is best for you. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi there, my fellow ambitious poker players. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast, in which today we are going to have a chat with high-stakes poker player Yuri Palak, a very um, often recommended guest. Yuri was uh, mentioned by various other podcast guests as a guy who had a very big impact on their poker career, so that made us very curious to have him on. He has years of experience playing high-stakes poker and also coaching in high-stakes poker. It took him around five to six years to get to these stakes, and today we will walk you guys through the path that led him there. Starting at an early age, being very competitive in games. In this case, I think it was Magic the Gathering, which uh, I think is starting to become a little bit of a tale of successful poker players, Adam. They all seem to have excelled in either games or sports before they uh, became a successful poker player. Yeah, I see it's a common trend that we're starting to pick up from these interviews. And yeah, he's definitely on the elite side of the gamers. Got to a really, really high level in many games. And then, yeah, transitioned that into having a successful poker career. Like you mentioned, he's been very highly recommended. To be honest, I don't know much about his background story. So I'm really intrigued to know how he's been able to have success in poker. I know he's an outside-the-box thinker who a lot of players respect for his ability to uh, come with complex strategies and simplify those in a good way. So, yeah, really intrigued to see where this conversation goes and bringing out Yuri's story for the, for the audience. All right, let's have Yuri on. All right, there he is, Yuri Pelek. Thank you for being on the pod. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Happy to be oh, here. Oh, well, we had, we had no choice, to be honest, because everyone keeps on talking about you in the podcast. The comments have been shouting, Yuri, Yuri. So... It also made us very curious. Like we have never met before, we've never spoken before. Obviously, I've heard about you. I've heard about Guerrilla Poker, your your coaching site. Uh, so yeah, obviously uh, a lot of respect. So let's dive into your story. Very curious about it. I wanted to start off at the beginning. Uh, you are not new to being a big winner in games. Because you mentioned that when you were, I think, 13 years old, you became world champion in Magic the Gathering. Uh, I actually played some Magic the Gathering when I was younger as well, but never got further than playing against my friends. Um, so I'm curious, how does one become a world champion in Magic the Gathering when they are 13 years old? Can you walk us through the childhood you had? Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with a fact correction. I, I was world champion when I was 24 years old. Uh, 13 years old is when I started playing Magic. Okay. Uh, I wish I'd been world champion. And actually, when I was in school at the age of 13, 
they had us fill in on this piece of paper, like, how do you imagine the rest of your life at various ages? And I filled in that at age 21, I would be the world champion in magic. So I'm actually three years late compared to the, but yeah, I, I was thinking about it at age 13. A lot of um, attraction. Yeah, no, I've, I've been in, in strategy games as long as I can remember myself. Um, kind of the, the first strategy game story I have is probably when I was six or seven years old. I was playing uh, Connect 4. You guys know that game? Mm-hmm. I was playing Connect 4 with my mother. And she did this thing where there are three next to each other. And then any move you make, you're going to lose the next move. If I, I, I don't know if you guys know what I mean, but... I know. Uh, and, and, and I was shocked because I, I, I couldn't find a way to stop her winning. And I asked her, how did you do that? And she told me how she did it. And ever since she told me, she never won a game that we played for the rest of our lives. Uh, because I, I, I had suddenly, I had a goal, I had a strategy. Uh, and then I was all the time directing the game in, into making these kind of situations. Uh, I was being deceptive about it, like I would distract her in other places in the board. I always knew kind of what I was aiming at. Um, So yeah, I think um, that's kind of when I started strategy games. Um, I I started playing Magic when I was 13, was also playing a bunch of other computer strategy games the whole time with friends. in Magic, I kind of got into the tournament scene in Israel. Uh, I think I went to my first world championship when I was 14 years old. I, I finished third in the national championship and kind of kept kept going. I was playing Magic all the time, uh, thinking about it all the time. Kind of like a lot of guys describe with poker. I, I, I didn't have that with poker. I had that with, with a different game where I was uh, dreaming about it, playing all day, not not doing anything else. Um, and there's actually, I know it's, it's a, I'm, I'm very non-linear with, with storytelling, but, uh, that I actually won the magic world championship after I'd already retired from playing magic. Oh, wow. And, and I think that has to do with, uh, with mental game a lot because, uh, I'd always pumped really big in international tournaments because of all the stress. Uh, and that year, because I was already retired, I was just going for fun because I was qualified. So there was no pressure and suddenly I was able to play really, really well. You still see that happening today, for example, in poker. For example, we actually had a guest on uh, previously. Um, he also talked about he spews the most when he's not happy in life. And we kind of talked about it's a sort of self-sabotage, right? You spew off because you don't want to be there. Um, is that something you sometimes mention, see in your poker game as well, when you're not happy uh, around poker that you notice you spew more? Um, yes. Yes, I, I, I often say, uh, you know, I always think my win rate is the average of two players. One is like a 15 BB winner and the other is a 10 BB loser maybe or an 8 BB loser. And I, I, I vary between playing one or the other version of myself a lot and a lot of you know improving for me is recognizing when and how to deal like how to recognize that i shouldn't be playing right now um and how how to like part of the the issue with this 
is that when you're in a mode when you shouldn't be playing, uh, your brain isn't working as well. So it's tougher to stop playing. It's tougher to think. And often I'll, I'll see the signs there, but I'm not in control enough to actually stop. So it, th th this is like a, definitely a very big challenge for me throughout my whole career is, is dealing with these kind of ups and downs. Like uh, even as a coach, I can't tell you guys how many times a student has come to me and he said, look, Uri, I think I'm, I want to quit poker. I've been losing the last three months. I, I don't care about the game anymore. And I always ask them, like, uh, well, what's up in, in your personal life? And it's always like I broke up with my girlfriend three months ago. My grandmother died. Like, there's always something there that kind of shifts them off track. And it can be a really vicious circle for people. I'm, I'm sure you guys know this, where... When the, the train goes off the track, it, it can take a while to get back on track in that sense. Yeah, I think also in coaching, I've done a lot of coaching as well. Like your, if, you, if your students are the train, right, and you try to lay down a track for them to follow, it's not that you're trying to prevent them from getting off track because they will get off track. I think the key is realizing that you're off track faster than before and course correcting back to the normal track faster than before, right? Instead of being off real for like three, four months, being off real for only two months is huge progress. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And always, uh, you know, in, in, in the CFP that we have, uh, we always tell people like, if, if you're on a downswing, you get as much coaching as you need. Like that's when you need the help the most uh, to get yourself back in the right mindset. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you have to help those people more, right? And then the people who are doing well, okay, yeah, we will compensate you when you know you are not doing so well. I think it's also, I think it's also interesting what you mentioned, that uh, especially, I mean, I don't really run a throwaway la throw labels, but you're more of an exploitative player. You mentioned that you're either plus fifteen or minus ten, and I see that in general if you have a more exploitative approach, which I, I have as well, and. I have a good friend of me who has that even to a more extreme. Uh, yeah, you're, you're just sometimes do something genius, but, you know, it's a thin line between doing something genius and spewing off completely. So if you're really in the mood, you're indeed just making genius plays always. But if you're not in that right state of mind, you're just spewing off. Is that kind of what you were describing with either being plus 15 BB or minus 10 BB, where someone who is more GTO will play a more consistent game, which is more average? The best exploitative player that I know, who's not me, I have a friend who's a lot better at it than I am. Um, he had the most massive sharp downswings I've ever seen in a professional player in my life because he had such a range in his play where he could do such crazy sick things. And if your brain is not calibrated correctly, if you're not in the right mental state and you go for the like, I'll check shop the river with a complete air against your overbet. But you do it without the correct cues and without the correct information, suddenly you're just a massive spew well, right? Like you're, you're just playing terrible. Um, and very often when I'm not in a good state of mind, what I find is that I'm making exploitative adjustments too quickly and too sharply. Whereas if I were playing GTO, there is not that kind of range in my game. Like I will just get to a spot, I'll RNG, maybe I'll pick the wrong combo, so I'll lose one big blind, but you'll never see like the 
I, I do some crazy shit when I play. Like I, I can I can be completely off the rails. So you know, call call you down for six hundred big blinds with ace high. I can double float air to raise river. You like everything's in there. So if if I'm not playing well, it can get bad really really fast. Yeah, and then it's also you 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 then try to force it. I guess right. It then comes less natural that if you yes. have a good flow, the plays come intuitive. Whereas else you're trying to okay, I have to make these good plays, and then you're just trying to force and create spots that basically aren't really spots. Yeah, when when I'm in a good mood, I'm I'm just playing, and the spots come to me. Uh, when I'm I'm in a bad state of mind, I'm more looking for the spots. I'm like, okay, I know this worked well last time. I'm I'm more reactive to the situation. Like my last bluff, he caught, so I'm not gonna bluff this time. I'm everything is a lot more emotional. Uh, it's a lot less nuanced and connected, and I might be reacting to someone's timing. Uh, even though it's not the, it, it's tough to say. Like the the brain puts one and two and three together often in ways which we're not consciously aware of. So if you try to rationalize everything when you're an exploitative player, you're just gonna get a bunch of stuff wrong. I think because uh, there's too much information to process in the, in the the amount of time you have to make a decision. So if if you want to be aggressive, you can find reasons to be aggressive. I actually have a kind of a new habit I'm working on because I'm a bit of a calling station um, in, in poker. So what often happens to me with a long time bank is I'll get to the river. The guy will make a big bet. My first instinct is, okay, I have to fold. Then I'll start time banking. I'll think about it. And in the last five seconds, I'll convince myself to call somehow. So yeah, I'm not allowing myself to do that anymore. Like if, if the decision... The decision is fault. Uh, even if I really want to call, I'll, I'm, I'm more disciplined. I won't kind of get sucked into. No, you take your bias in consideration in your decision making. I say this to my students as well. So if you see a spot, for example, you get a hero folder and a hero caller, right? These are their main tendency. And you have them look at the same spot. They will focus on the reasons to call. The other one will focus on the reasons to fault. So then I say, okay, you guys should... You don't have to change everything you know about poker. It's just you have to take in consideration with bias. So if you think it's a close call, but you're a calling station, it's probably a fault. So it's close call, it's but call. I'm biased, so I'm a fault. And the same, same for the other guy. So how do we then close the gap between these ranges right, of game? You already mentioned GTO. For example, if you are very blocker-oriented, you stay within a certain range. right? You're never going to go too out of line because you only pick a good block at a certain frequency, whereas I've certainly been guilty of, well, this guy's just going to fold, so I have the worst blocker possible. I don't care. It's going to go in, right? How do we then close the gap? Is yep. then GTO the way to close the gap? Um, so, so I want to first add another thing to what you were saying about biases. Um, I, I, I think people have an emotional bias with hands, so I always say if, if you have trips or you have an overpair, and you're not sure about calling or folding, then definitely fold. Uh, well, if you have ace high or bottom pair and you're not sure, then definitely call. I think that that's also kind of a bias correction heuristic um, that's worked fairly well for me. Uh, although it's tough to it's tough to fold trips, right? Like e even if you know that, it's still tough. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I, I think knowing GTO helps um, for sure because it also limits you. Like the, the more you know GTO, um, the easier it is to excuse a bad play. So, sorry to call GTO a bad play, but often people will make like a terrible bluff or a terrible call and they know it's bad, but they know that they get to make it 30% of the time and they, they'll be okay. Like this is GTO, it can't be too bad. And like, uh, I, I think from, from hearing you speak, we agree that there are calls that GTO would make that are massively losing calls. Uh, so I, I think it can go both way with GTO. And I do have friends who, when they're tilted, they tell me I, I play more GTO when I'm tilted. Like I, I use GTO as an excuse to, to, to bluff or to call or to fold rather than listening to like what I know about the game that is beyond and, and deeper and more practical than GTO. They start to ignore that and, and they just like knowing both, you can have an excuse for any decision you want to make, right? You can call for an exploitative reason or you can call for a GTO reason. You always... I, I don't think GTO really protects you in that sense, unless you play pure GTO, which I think is a terrible idea, unless you're a super genius, like you know, so, some guys can pull it off and, and be the best in the world. Um, like Linus, Phil Galfond, Doug Polk, maybe like so, some guys can study GTO and just be the best in the world at doing that. Uh, but I think for most people, trying to mimic GTO is not a very good idea. Yeah, and the frequencies in a solver are also very biased, right? Bias sensitive. Something is a frequency 50-50. If you're in general a guy who gives up more, you will find a reason, ah, this time no. And the guy who always uh, wants to bluff sees it as, oh, 50-50. That means I can bluff this. And then we'll basically always bluff this. So again, it's very bias sensitive. I also always like it when people start a hand history where they start with a very exploitative reason on the flop, right? They say, oh, I oversee that this flop because it's going to overfold. And then they arrive to the river, they face a bet. They say, well, now I have a GTO frequency call. I'm like, wait, but the range that you now arrive at on the river is different because I always say when you enter, when you enter the exploit tree, right? When you hop on the exploit train on the earlier street, you cannot suddenly make a GTO reasoning on the later street, right? I actually had an interesting conversation with a friend about that yesterday. He was in a multi-way pot and one of the guys with a, was a calling station. So he told me, okay, I'm, I'm never bluffing because he's a calling station, so I'll check my value hands to be balanced. And I was like, that, that's not how exploitative poker works. If, no, if you're never bluffing because he's a calling right. station, you don't check that doesn't seem right. So, so yeah, it's very easy to confuse. And also, like the 50% river, like you said, has to do with the range you arrive at the river with. Uh, and very often you're making a frequency mistake on earlier streets. So really the frequency there doesn't have anything to do with optimal play or not getting there with the correct range. Almost any, nobody is. So you're, you're kind of deluding yourself in a way. I, I still think it's even a nice mental safety net to randomize sometimes. But uh, yeah, agree, agree with what you said, 100%. Actually, that's interesting that you said. I've been recently trying to implement that as well as a mental safety net and also to prevent your bias that if I really don't have a good reason that I at least do it 50-50. 
right? I, I really cannot figure this out. Yeah. It's 50-50, so my bias cannot unconsciously override me. And, and then you get less tilted as well, I think, if you lose, because you're like, okay, I, I was only doing it 50-50, so it's okay to, to call and lose. Well, if, if you play pure exploit, I, I think the, the times you lose hurt a bit more than if you randomize. Yeah, actually, I had this question written down for, for later, but hey, we're talking about that now. Indeed, like I think exploitative play is harder on the mental game because if you're wrong, you were wrong. It's very personal, whereas people who are you way more solver yeah. approach, yeah. they say, well, the solver told me to do this. So you basically put responsibility in the hand of the solver. Well, the solver said it, that it was a call. So I take no responsibility in the fact that I now made a bad call, right? Whereas exploitatively, you make a bluff because you think it's a good bluff and the guy calls you with a hand that he should never call, that means you made a terrible bluff, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and variance is really deceptive, especially with bluff catching, because you might make a bluff catch that's not GTO because you think the guy is over-bluffing the spot. He just shows you the nuts. It's a huge pot. How are you going to feel? You're never going to know if you were correct or not. And if you just play GTO, you would be like, okay, like this is how the spot plays. He has his range. I have my range. I, I played fine. But if you're making like, you know, sometimes on the river, I have a bluff catcher. I'm not randomizing 40%. I'm zero or a hundred. Like I'm, I'm thinking and, and making the decision. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot more personal. It's a lot more sensitive to tilt in A game, B game, C game. Uh, it, 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 it's a, it's a different world. I think it, it, it fits a different personality of player as well. But, uh, like to, to me, this is poker. I don't think if, if you want to do the GTO memorization, uh, you should be playing a different game in my eyes. Like you should play chess, uh, some game where I, I, I don't know, it's less about personality, more about analysis. If, if you want to just perform GTO solutions. You you mentioned chess as well, and you also mentioned before that you were playing Hearthstone on top of Magic the Gathering. How does GTO and exploitative play? How does that look in? You also mentioned chess, right? If you want to play more GTO, play chess. How do GTO plays, exploitative plays, look like in Magic the Gathering, Hearthstone, chess? Uh, it's an interesting question. So e each of these games is super different, even though they are similar. I think both chess and Magic the Gathering are games where there is a lot less hidden information than there is in poker. So very often there are clearly very good plays and very bad plays. It's not You don't need to know your opponent's range as much. Um, so it's a lot more about seeing a situation and analyzing it correctly and coming up with a, a good game plan. Um, in, in terms of GTO and exploitative, um, I, I would say, you know, may, maybe an exploitative approach to the games would be uh, to bank on your opponents making mistakes rather than assuming they, they react correctly. And very often that will open avenues for you to win, which wouldn't exist if they played correctly. But there, there is a lot less room for exploitative play in those games. It's more about, um, I, I think all, all three of those games, uh, they have two elements. There's the, the play itself, which is just looking at the board, analyzing, making a good decision, and, and very often 
everyone will agree what is the correct decision. There won't be different approaches. Like it's too, there's too much information for good players to really argue. Um, but a lot of the, the creativity in those games actually comes into the preparation and the decisions that you make before you start playing. Uh, so in Hearthstone and, and Magic the Gathering and maybe to a degree chess, you are actually, like Magic the Gathering is a game where there are over 10,000 different cards and each player constructs the deck of cards he's going to the tournament with. And I think in the deck construction, so before you start playing, when you're preparing the cards and the strategy, that's where there is room for, for exploitative strategy, for guessing what your opponents are going to be doing and how to counter it and how they might try to counter you. And all, all those kinds of things happen before you sit down to play in these games. And do you know the other player's deck? No, no, you, you don't. You don't know his and he doesn't know yours. Uh, you can sometimes guess because there are like the deck that won the previous tournament. So, so you have some information what people are likely to play. Um, but yeah, I think my, my big strength in Magic the Gathering has always been in this aspect. Uh, so in terms of, uh, you know, if there's technical play in Magic the Gathering, I was maybe top 100 in the world. Um, but when it came to the strategy that you make before you play, uh, preparing the deck in a way that's good for the people you're playing against, I was probably top five in the world. So it was mainly in the anticipating of what your opponent is going to do that kind of made you construct your deck and maybe in poker play your hand a certain way. I don't know, you set a certain trap on the flop because you know what he's going, how he's going to anticipate, right? What he's going to do on later street that gives you the exploitative edge. I, I think it's also about uh, understanding which cards and which strategies work together, what, what kind of synergies there are in the game. Uh, synergy. I, I don't know if the synergy applies to poker, but in Magic, very often you're trying to, in, in Hearthstone as well, you're trying to use your cards together. Uh, so how you use them, what is effective against one strategy or the other, what isn't effective. Uh, I, I can tell you guys a story from actually the championship that I won. In the quarterfinals, I was playing against a genius player from Japan, uh, Katsuhiro Mori a much more successful player than I was. He was a previous world champion and he went like back to back top four in the world year after year in, in, in this format. And he was a lot sharper technically than I was, uh, but I was out maneuvering him in all the strategic aspect as we were playing like by, by a huge margin. And, and these, these two things that they're both part of it, right? Both part of your success. So in poker, if you think about uh, when you're playing, uh, like there's so much information to think about my range and his range and the timing and the board and the positions and everything is shifting. Maybe you think about your opponent's mood. Uh, so some people are able to do these things really well. I have, you know, a friend who was one of, you know, a high stakes cash game player for years and years. He never touched a solver. He had like huge leaks all over his game, but he was just really, really sharp and really thinking fast and adjusting on his feet. 
and he, he, he managed to stay successful at the highest levels with, with no theory background whatsoever. Um, while, you know, obviously if, if you take that guy and you give him a good theory background, he would do a lot better, obviously. Um, so yeah, I, I think my strength has always been developing good strategies, good exploitative strategies specifically, uh, to counter what's currently going on, uh, adjusting to player types well in terms of game plan, uh, simplifying solver outputs, understanding kind of what is and what isn't important. Um, and then in, in the end, you know, you give that to someone, he has to implement it. Some guys are super good at that. Some guys are a lot slower. E each one needs his own kind of game plan. You know, some, sometimes some of the best players I know start talking about, like, I have ace of clubs, queen of spades. These are the absolute best suits to triple barrel bluff with on this random board. And I, I like, my brain is not capable of understanding that in game. I, I I don't think that that deep. You just think like, is this guy a guy who is going to fold? Yes. Okay, I'll pull the trigger regardless of yes. my suits. Yeah, I'm I'm more I'm more more in that style. Yeah, for sure. Which if you would look at the impact a player profile would have on the fold equity of your bluff, it's going to be higher than the ace of spades, queen of clubs, right? Yeah, but if that guy is really good, he can do both. Like some True. people can do both of those. True. And also, you know, you understand when blockers are important, when blockers aren't important. If the guy value bets 20 combos and you block four of them, that seems quite relevant. Whereas if the guy value bets 200 combos and you block four of them, it's not very relevant. Whereas people or solver, for a solver, it's equally relevant, right? Because, you know, it's the, the EV difference is going to be very small, but always the kind of the tipping point between calling or folding. Whereas in practice, we should first underestimate what are the blocker impacts in this exact spot and then see, okay, how high should blockers on blockers be taken in consideration in my decision making? Yeah, and, and I think always whenever I look at solver outputs, I'm not looking so much at what the solver considers correct or incorrect, uh, more at what the solver considers close or not close. So if it's a 200 big blind pot and the solver thinks your call is winning three big blinds on the river, I I think that just means it's close. I, I don't think three or minus three are any different in a 200 big blind pot. Um, it, it, it's confusing because the solver will show you like always call this, always fold this, always bluff that, always give up that. And li like you're saying, sometimes there is a huge difference considering blockers, but very often the differences are very, very minor and you should be focused on something else. So the, the kind of thought process I like to use when I get to a decision, you know, I, I always think about the theory and I think, okay, I, I think my blockers are such where this is close or this is bad or this is good. And then I stop and I think, okay, what about all the other million things that are going on that would push me in one direction or, or another. And they're often worth so much more than the 2% that, that the blockers are worth. Yeah, th th there's even kind of a mathematical model for this that you could use sometimes where uh, you're making a bluff catching decision and the solver thinks it's 3 BB per 100. And then you're like, okay, uh, he needs to, to bet this range. I think 
you know, there is a 30% chance that he will never have bluffs because it's very unintuitive. Uh, if he were some over-agromaniac, I would know, so there's no chance of that. And then there's a 70% chance he probably bluffs enough, like a GTO player. And once you start breaking down things like that, where there is a chance my opponent is never bluffing here, and there is a very low chance he's over-bluffing, then the decision suddenly becomes crystal clear with, with no... You don't need to think about blockers anymore. You're just like, you know, if if seventy percent of the time I'm winning three big blinds and and thirty percent of the time I'm losing seventy big blinds, the math is, is fairly simple. Yeah, I usually talk about thinking in best versus worst case scenarios. Best case scenario, he does reach a yeah, GTO yeah. frequency, and indeed you have a reasonably break even call. Worst case scenario, he never has a bluff, and you're you're just punting away your stack, right? Yeah, and as, as long as you're not playing guys like Linus or Stefan or like the this the agroist maniac in, in your player pool, you, you can be fairly sure. Uh, very few people manage to be as maniacal as a as a GTO uh, Solomon would. Yeah, like I think I already mentioned, even though we never spoke before the potter set, I think we think very similar about poker, which up until now. Uh, I can definitely confirm. I was actually already getting excited when you were talking about magic and you were talking about preparing a deck and you look at, okay, what decks have been very popular? And then you can already think, hmm, people are probably going to show up with this deck. How can I counter that deck? And that was always how I approach poker as well, right? Like, okay, who are my players? What are their tendencies? First, we have to realize that everyone plays different, right? People already close up their mind because they think, oh, everyone nowadays plays the same. Well, then you're not looking good enough. Everyone has different tendencies because we're playing against humans. And I think the most interesting part in poker is trying to figure out what kind of tendencies this guy has and how I can shift my strategy to take most advantage of that. And, and that there is so much depth to that. I, I think a lot of people, as they're moving up, they have this illusion that the game is solved and everyone's super good and like, um, it's really holding them back. Uh, there is so much, uh, so much room for for gaining an advantage, and actually something I, I was thinking about the, the other day. Uh, and and, and I, I assume again from what I'm hearing that you're the same. It, it, if I would sit at an NL 200 cash game table uh, with one big whale and four regulars, I would not be playing as though I'm playing against one whale and four regulars. I would be thinking, okay. There is one big fish and four small fish at the table. Uh, so what, like, how do I, I'm going to exploit each and every one of you. You know, the saying like at, at the table, if you can't spot the fish, then you're the fish. Uh, so if you treat the other regulars like they are just very good GTO machines, that then you are the fish, uh, you, you are the target. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, kind kind of, if we're talking advice for people moving up, you don't be afraid. All the, like, online poker is, is super beatable. Everyone is super bad. I'm, I'm telling you, this is, like, at all stakes, even at high stakes, everyone, I mean, not everyone, but for the most part, lots of people are making mistakes. It, it It's a... Uh, it, it's a battle, you know. We're we're playing poker. This isn't chess. This isn't science. We're we're only human. No one is mimicking stuff correctly, and even like uh, even at high stakes, a lot of people are simplifying their strategies in very obvious ways. 
And there are huge counters you can make to that, and they have no clue how what to do about those. Like at every level, there's there's tons of room to to treat people as fish and, and have fun rather than than kind of being afraid and and playing defense. Yeah, but you first need to have that break that belief, right? There are things you can look for because if you think everyone is GTO, then why would you even start looking, right? Because I also sometimes I see people that say, yeah, he's a wreck. I'm like, okay, yeah, what kind of wreck? Yeah, this is my tech for wreck. This is my tech for fish. And then they have two colors. I'm like, okay, you're missing a lot of nuances here. Are we talking about a spewy, spewy wreck, a nitty wreck? You know, it's like, come on, we need more information here to make good decisions. And especially, like you mentioned, right, on the river, two on the big blind pots. Well, if there you can avoid a minus 70 BB call, I think that has quite a big impact on your win rate. Compared to finding the optimal flop sizing, I uh, flop flops. I don't don't get me started on people who look for the optimal flop sizing, but uh, that that's uh, yeah one one of the the biggest black holes for useless poker time that that people spend. But uh, yeah, I, I would say maybe maybe a good heuristic for people is you know if you are not yet playing uh, nosebleeds online, uh, there is no reg tag. Uh, it's either a regfish, an aggro regfish, or a nitty regfish, but there is no reg. There are no regs. I like that. I like that because it automatically makes you search, right? Because you don't give him the credit. No, no, nobody deserves credit in, in poker. I, I mean, as, as a mentality, of course, some people are going to be better than you are. Um, and and I'm like like we're all fish. I'm I'm also like a station regfish myself, as as self admitted one. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think the mentality you need in order to succeed in poker is to, to think that, uh, you can gain an edge against your opponents. And if you feel like you can't gain an edge and all you can do is, is break even, then that's all you're going to do. You're just going to break even. Like you'll win off the fish, you'll lose it to the rake and, and, and that's where it's going to end. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. Adam, I, uh. What is your experience with exploitive players and their messed up mental game, or at least their their bigger struggles? Let's keep let, let, let's keep it that way. Yeah, it was very interesting to hear both of you talk about the difference between being a kind of GTO player and an intuition exploit player. Both of you you guys fit into the exploits intuitive guys, and yeah, just acknowledging that that comes with a higher amount of toll on the mental bandwidth. You've got to have a lot more. Um, self-doubt in your game like Yuri was saying he's got this big divide between his games he's like the best player in the world plus 15 BB win rates or he has that drop off to minus one and I think when you are that type of player you do need to spend a lot of time on looking for ways to protect yourself like Yuri was saying like just acknowledging I'm going to have times when I shouldn't be playing I shouldn't be trying to force myself to get creative here I'm actually uh, I shouldn't be playing the game so uh, I think building clear profiles and understanding when your amazing exploits are now hurting you and you need to uh, almost protect yourself by taking breaks or getting out of the games altogether during those times. So uh, yeah, I think the intuitive players have the harder job and they need to do more work on the mental game and pay more attention to their ebbs and flows and their moods going into sessions. Whereas the logical GTO players, like you guys were saying, have more of a safety net. They can just follow a framework and they're less involved emotionally because they've always got GTO did it, not me. So there's less of you involved in it. And also there's also a system that you're following where you don't need to solve every situation on the fly. You can just rely on a kind of default. So uh, yeah, from my experience, I think the 
a lot of players who I work with big downswings who have to lose confidence in their game are generally the more intuitive players and they almost lose confidence in the, the skill that has given them their edge. And as a result, they've got to like rebuild that confidence and go, oh, like Yuri talked about his friend who's amazing when I'm on the most extreme downswings. And that's because obviously variance involves in that strategy, but also when you lose your confidence in those kind of players, there's almost like nothing to hold on to. Whereas GTO always creates a kind of safety net and a, an anchor to return to. So yeah, I think intuitive players have the, the harder job in all honesty, especially from a mindset perspective. And yeah, it's just been very aware of it. And like Yuri was talking about, trying to build a, build a profile of when you're into that minus range of your game tree. And yeah, just finding ways to spot it earlier and finding countless to that is going to be higher EV than anything else. So yeah, that'll be my kind of um, experience with that. I, wa I wanted to add something to that because I do think if I see a change in my game, implementing or understanding more theory compared to how I played before, which was just pure exploits. But after Solvers came out and started to understand more theory, that did help me create sort of a fundament that my game can drop until a certain point, but there it stops. It no longer goes to like minus 10, but due to just, you know, being able to play sort of in line when I don't feel at my best. My, my Basically, my bottom is not as bad anymore ever since I got better in theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and unless you play against a really big fish, because then then you don't rely on the theory safety net, so it can still be no. But a but but that's the good thing. From that strong base now, I am able to constantly mm -hmm. exploit. Right. So I feel like right now I'm in a spot where I keep the benefits. Obviously, the benefits I think will be a bit reduced because your mind will sometimes make GTO traps. Or like, oh, why the fuck did I think about this? Is this is way too theory oriented? So the top is a bit less on the top, I would say, but I think it's worth it compared to how mm -hmm. deep the bottoms were, basically. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I, I think it has to be a foundation these days because, uh, you know, a lot of people are implementing strategies that are very unintuitive. And if you don't understand what they're doing, you cannot really counter it. Um, like all the solver strategies and the solver combos and the stuff that's going on, you can't hand read unless you understand how bet sizes work and how ranges work. And, and, and like suddenly someone check raises you and he shows middle pair years ago that that would never have happened unless he was a recreational. And if you're trying to exploit and, you know, it, 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 it's important, like the more you understand, the better. Uh, like you were saying, you don't need to know the exact frequencies that is not very useful but definitely the I, I know you guys i love the name of your course the mechanics of poker i think if, if you understand the mechanics of poker a brilliant name really brilliant name uh, then you can use that both as a foundation uh, where you know you are deviating from something good like you have the solid baseline you don't have to guess at everything um, you know, when, when I was moving up in stakes, uh, I, I was pure exploiting every single situation, like pure 200% exploitative play, game plan, 35% uh, check raise flop, uh, all, all sorts of like crazy, crazy things. This was in, in 2012 or so. Um, and and I, I had all these crazy leveling wars and I, I, I was crushing everyone moving up. And, and then I moved up to, to a stake where like people were actually adjusting to me in good ways. They were calling me down in spots where I was always bluffing. Uh, they were defending their ranges better. And I was super lost. I had no clue what to do. 
because other than looking at your HUD and your fold to three bet, I don't know what the three betting range looks like. Like if your fold to three bet looks okay, what like what am I supposed to do now? I don't know. Uh, so so to have the 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 background and understanding how things work, I think is is mandatory at at some level. Like you you could probably beat NL two hundred with with almost no background if if I had to guess on a lot of sites. But but at some point it, it's mandatory to get this for your own mental health. Yeah, it seems like for you, you do well once you understand a strategy and then you can exploit from that. It reminds me of the story you told about playing Connect Four with your mom. And as soon as you knew the strategy, you're like, all right, I know now. Now I'm in exploit zone. Good luck. So like having that base of strategy to uh, refer to seems to work really well for you to be able to uh, yeah, exploit around that. Like you said, you need a foundation to know uh, when someone re-exploits you back, what's the next move? If you don't know that, you end up lost at some point. So uh, yeah, having that kind of base is always always going to be useful, especially for the way your mind works. Uh, yeah, so so the, the, the course uh, I just put out with uh, with upswing exploitative cash game exploits there is a section about c betting and you, you guys probably know this where you know there's this equilibrium where if someone c bets too much you start check raising them all the time but most people do not check raise enough so the exploit is to c bet too much like this is uh, I, I think something most exploitative players are aware of these days it, it's one of the first things that jumps out when you look at c betting strategies um and one, one of the important things that, that I talk about there is like, th this is step one of what's going on. Like there's C betting too much, the guy check raises. How do you counter the guy who check raises too much? How do you, do you re like, or if you C bet too much, which ways can people counter you? Which of these can you see and which will you not like, will you be able to see if someone check raises you too much? That's a tough thing to see. How do you know if someone's countering you like that, there is a lot of depth to thinking about these things. You can use solvers to, to figure them out. Uh, if you use solvers creatively, you're node locking, you're, you're changing things up and not just like, okay, this is the GTO, let's randomize 80% CBET. Because, you know, if someone CBETs one third pot on a lot of boards, he's not randomizing 80%, he's doing 100%. So we're automatically in a leveling war on a flop. Most people, I think, don't realize that this is even going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, there, there are lots of level, strategic levels to this, to, to all of the, the, the exploits have, have various levels to, to think about. Would you say the person who knows the most steps or the most levels ahead in that exploit war generally has the biggest edge? I, I mean, like, like I was saying before, it's part of the edge is knowing more and part of the edge is being able to think very quickly and accurately when, when you're in the situation. Uh, the, the best player is going to be the one who thinks the best and deepest and also knows the most and also has the most stable mindset. Uh, like if you asked me what would be the biggest boost to my win rate at this point, it has to be mindset. Like, no question. If I could eliminate the times where I shouldn't be playing, I can't imagine anything else that would help my win rate more than that. Uh, being in the zone more, being, you know, punting less, doing stuff where a second later I know it's terrible. Uh, so so that, there are lots of aspects. This is, like, this is definitely one of them. It, it's just one of many aspects. I think, like, poker is a very... Very multi-dimensional game. Being successful in poker, you can't be good at just one thing. Yeah, 
So what are you doing currently to work on your biggest mindset leak of spotting when you're punting, almost like protecting yourself by not playing in those in those states? So what are you doing currently to uh, kind of eradicate those those bad playing hours? Ah, uh, this is not. I'm I'm not proud of how I handle these things, but. Um... I, I think one, one thing I do is I, I do shorter sessions with breaks in between uh, so that the session length is a limiting factor, like I can't punt off for four hours because there's, there's a mandatory break in between. Um, and not, other things I'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to recognize patterns. Uh, like I know, for example, that if I don't feel like doing chores, then I shouldn't be playing poker. Like that, that is the mindset of, I just want to gamble and have fun or, or let some steam off. And that's not a good mindset for poker. So there are like tests I can make. Like I sit down at the computer. I know I need to call the bank. If I don't feel like calling the bank, I will not play poker. Uh, but yeah, it, it's that, that there's tons of stuff going on there. I've, I've done a decent amount of work with Jared Tendler, uh, who's, who's helped me a lot. Uh, really smart guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing process for me, like still not, not my, my best skill for sure. Yeah. I, I like that one. If, um, if you don't want to ring the bank, it's a good sign that you're in a state of mind that isn't going to be conducive to your, your best poker performance. And we're all going to have unique kind of tendencies. So yeah, I think building that self-awareness of your patterns is kind of the first step. Then from there, you've got the option to either protect yourself by not playing and shorten your sessions like you were doing. Then the long-term solution is finding a resolution to those issues. How do I change my state of mind when I'm in this sub suboptimal state? How can I prime myself to be in a more uh, advanced state of mind going into game? But yeah, I think self-awareness and spotting those patterns going forward is the, yeah, it takes time. Like you said, it's not a, a one fixed thing. It takes a lifetime to spot your own tendencies and your own patterns and the way you show up and the things that impact you and yeah, kind of, the kind of the, the game tree of your mental the game takes a while to to figure out so it's a it's a work in progress so i'd love to bring it back to your story and back to uh almost like starting out in poker to be honest i know we had the you've basically been a world champion in magic the gathering and yeah i'm really intrigued to know uh, how the transition to poker went i think it's from my perspective someone who's been a world champion at 23 before going into another game i'm guessing there's some form of expectations going into poker or at least some form of ego thinking you know what I'm good at strategy games. So uh, talk us through when you first got into poker, how were you approaching it as, in terms of a strategy game? And did you have a high expectation or high ego going into that? Um, so I'll, I'll give you guys some background. Um, I think I started poker at an older age than most people. And uh, like, like I said, I, I was playing lots of strategy games, not just magic and, and poker and, and that's it. And... Um, I remember thinking at various points in my life when I'd, I'd do something like to completely crush a strategy game and, and the game was, you know, me and my friends would often stop playing after because there was like, we'd, we'd know the best strategy and there was no point. I often thought, uh, you know, I, I was so happy and so proud to do that, but it, it's such a shame that nobody really cares except me and my buddy who I, who I play the game with. And uh, I... I, I never imagined I was going to be a competitive gamer. Um, I, you know, I, I, I finished my BA in university. I, I went to work um, in a startup in computer science. Um, and what happened to me there was that uh, the guy sitting at the desk next to me 
uh, was super passionate about programming. And he was a friend of mine and he kept telling me, oh, you know, let's work on a computer game. Let's do this project. Let's do that project. And I would like, when I would get home, I just want to play games. I never want, I didn't even think one second about programming. And kind of my family background, uh, my mother is in career counseling. Um, and I was always very, very much thinking that, you know, uh, your profession is where you spend uh, maybe one third to half of your hours as a grown up. And it, it is just as important as picking, like finding the right uh, person to spend the rest of your life with. It, it's a super important thing. Uh, so seeing him uh, made me decide, you know, I'm good at programming. Uh, it's fine. Like I, I, I enjoy it somewhat, but there is no passion there. So what happened was I, I quit programming. Um, and I decided to study psychology. And at the same time, I started to play poker with my friends. And I remember this moment where me, I, I went over to a friend's house. We played like a 5 or $10 MTT together. And uh, we, we won first place, $2,500. And it, it was such a powerful experience for me where the, the entire next day, I just walked around the streets kind of daydreaming, like, is, is it actually possible to make a living doing, doing this kind of thing? I, I was completely shocked. I, I never imagined this could be something I could do. Uh, because like you guys have to understand, I, I don't know how old both of you guys are, but competitive gaming being something you can make a living at uh, did not exist when I was growing up. Like the, We started having internet at home when I was 16 years old. Like, this is not something I grew up thinking was an option. And as I was playing poker and, and starting out and all these stories moving up, my, my biggest ambition in poker was like, you know, I'm enjoying myself so much. Uh, if I can make as much money as I could, if I, I was like, you know, if I can make $100 a day, I'm good. That, that's where I want to be in, in poker. And... Uh, yeah, like look, looking at where I am now, I, I, I would never have imagined. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful to the game. And I think a lot of the, like I, I was always moving up stakes slowly. I hate risk. I, I hate gambling. Like this is not, uh, not something that appeals to me instinctively. I, I think for me, losing money hurts a lot more than winning money. Uh, I, I already kind of had my competitive appetite satisfied in, in Magic the Gathering. So I was just kind of thinking as a grown-up, like, where is my life going to be? And like, I finished my degree in psychology at the same time I was living with friends, all playing poker together. And, you know, at, at that point, the choice was very obvious where, uh, you know, psychology is like four more years of study and then four years working at minimum wage. And, you know, I get to see if I enjoy the work or not. And, you know, I was grinding sit and goes as I was studying for tests. I loved poker all the time, was making decent money. So it, it was a very no-brainer decision to, to take that direction. And yeah, I, I did not have expectations. I didn't think I was gonna ever play 510. I was like, you know, if I make it a 2-4, I'm, I'm happy. And that's where I was aiming for when I was playing um, and, and you know even when 
remember one of the first times I played 2550. Uh, I stacked off with someone in a three in a four bet pot. Uh, I had kings. He had trips with some hand. He should have folded pre flop, uh, like twelve thousand dollar pot. Uh, and you guys know how online it's like twelve thousand dollars, but the software doesn't care. It's like okay, turn card, river card, next hand, right? Everything's super fast, even though it's it's dramatic for you. And, and I, I hit the king on the river, scoop the twelve thousand dollar pot. And I, I was so shocked by that. I, I quit the table. I didn't touch 5K ML for a year. I was like, this is too much swings for me. I, I can't take it. Um, so that's kind of, uh, yeah, my, my expectations were, I, I did not expect to do well. And no, not this well in poker. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting for your generation because you are obviously an elite gamer. So now anyone who's 13 to 16 who plays games competitively, knows they can make a living in many many games whereas for you uh, that path wasn't in your horizon it was, wasn't possible yet at that time so you get into poker with a great skill set of being a gamer you didn't realize you could monetize that so when did that start to change so when you're you went into poker obviously you've graduated from university you you're living with friends who are playing poker when did you, your eyes start to light up and start to think wait a second actually this could be a really clear path because you said you're making money on the side when did you really start to see the potential of your poker career um so so basically like i said i quit programming we had the the big big two thousand five hundred dollar score split between two people uh you know that that sounds funny by today's standards for a lot of people but you know it all, all depends how much money you have in a bank i think and and you have to realize like the the, the magic world championship first place is forty thousand dollars not ten million dollars like poker so it's a very different world in terms of uh of how much money you can make. Uh, I think like even the best magic players in the world would always move on to some serious profession at, at some point. So the game was not nearly as competitive as poker is. Um, and yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm losing track of the question. I'm sidetracking myself too much. You, you were saying when did, uh, when did- When did you start to realize how much potential poker had as a long-term career path and when were you uh... Because you were in this mode of seeing a hundred dollars a day mm. would be a great amount for me. When are you starting and set your sights higher and having more success in poker? So yeah, I, I think my first year in poker, uh, I, me and three friends, we're all we all know each other from for years for Magic the Gathering. We moved in together into a flat in Jerusalem, uh, and one of the guys there was already fairly successful in poker. Uh, he was a pot limit Omaha player. And, and we all, like, he, he coached us a decent bit. We were all fairly clueless. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, th I think I fairly quickly saw that I, I was able to make money. I, I must have made, I don't know, maybe $50,000 in that first year, uh, which, you know, in, in terms of how much money that is, $50,000 at that time uh, is similar to what I would have made as a full-time programmer working that year and I was doing this as I was studying uh, for, for psychology. Uh, then second year, you know, I was, uh, I, I started uh, coaching a little bit for like, I coached someone for $50 an hour and $50 an hour is a, is a lot of money in the real world when, when you're a college student. That's an insane amount of money, $50 an hour. I know this varies country to country, but but like all these things, they were all uh, super huge for me. 
so yeah, I, I think I like within within a year or two, it, it was clear that I I was able to make a reasonable living playing poker. That it was definitely an option. Um, and and like I said, when when you're when you're thinking like three thousand dollars a month is like one thousand to pay the rent, and then I have two thousand for everything else, uh, or I think rent is even less than one thousand back then. Uh, not not aiming too high, not spending too much money. Um, yeah, I think it was fairly fast, fairly fast. I think within, like I said, within two years, I finished. Uh, my studies and I, I was like okay I'm, I'm just doing poker full-time so you described yourself as someone who's quite risk averse and you hate losing more than you like winning did that did, was there any obstacles you ran into with that kind of mindset going into poker or in your first few years did you run into any big downswings or any financial or losing periods where maybe it was hard to deal with uh, well Bl Black Friday was hard to deal with if I don't know if you guys were, were playing back then but Black Friday kind of uh, annihilated most of my bankroll at the time. And that took me a few months mentally to, to recover from and start playing well again. Um, I have never really had big downswings as I was playing. I think because of like what, what happened, it's tough to say if, if it's hurt me or not. I, I moved up stakes really, really slowly. Like you, you can imagine I'm winning 10 BB per 100 at 50 NL. I'm probably by far the best player there and I, I'm, I'm not interested in moving up like I'm scared to move up to take risks and I remember first time I played NL 600 I lost four buy-ins in one session and then I moved down for one month to NL 100 to grind the four buy-ins back like that is the mentality I had um, so I, everything was just super slow uh, you know personally in my experience the, the downswings were tough I don't think I, like, being honest, I never had a big one. I don't know if I had even a 30 buy-in downswing uh, in my entire career. Um, but uh, like that, a 20 buy-in downswing for me might feel like a 60 buy-in downswing for someone else, given my mental state. So I was just, uh, yeah, just trying to protect myself from that. And like I said, when, when you're not aiming too high, uh, you don't have to push yourself too hard. So that, that probably helped as well. Yeah, it sounds like you had some protection mechanisms in play. One, having a high win rate at your game, being one of the best players, moving up very slowly. So you're probably way, way ready to move up stakes earlier, but to mitigate a lot of the risk. And that's obviously allowed you to go through your career, especially early career, without many of the swings that many players will be experiencing. So yeah, almost like that fear of risk or that risk aversion led you to make a create a safety first path where you were going to uh, cap a lot of the downsides, obviously capping some of the upside as well, but it allowed you to, uh, yeah, kind of move, uh, move quite smoothly through your, your poker career. So in terms of uh, some skills you developed through gaming, what are some of the skills you feel like have been helpful for you as a poker player? We know we've got this kind of strategy thinker who's able to uh, almost like think of their opponent's ranges. What are some of the skills that being a gamer has helped you develop, which transitioned well into poker? Um, so I, I think the biggest one uh, for Magic the Gathering and, and in a way from chess is that the, these are games, like I said, which the, the rand I, I'm not sure I said this, but the randomness element is different than in poker. Um, the games 
actually play a lot slower like one game can be 20 30 minutes rather than one hand which you know can be 30 60 seconds uh you're not multi-tabling everything is being done live so everything's so much slower and uh, this caused me to think to look for all the tiniest edges in every single decision because you have time to think about it and the times that you make a tiny mistake and you end up losing it can haunt you for a long time there is no like five tables in a background that you're multi-tabling and everything's moving fast uh like i remember one time i was in new york playing in a tournament and i we had like a 50 minute game and I, I made, like, in the first four minutes, like, a tiny, tiny mistake. And that was the difference, winning or losing the game. And that game knocked me out of the tournament in retrospect. So when, when you play poker, like, when I play poker, and there is two big blinds and a five-way limp pot on the river, I'm taking it super seriously. Like, there's no, there's very little autopiloting in, in my game in any decision. I think I'm a lot better at small pots than most people as a result of my gaming background like i'm not i'm not in it for the big pots i'm i'm playing every single hand every single decision i'm thinking through as much as i can um and i think uh yeah may, maybe the strategy building aspect from you know having so much experience in so many different forms of games and formulating strategies especially before there were solvers uh, kind of helps you to to think and kind not not be too scared of, of trying stuff out maybe i don't know mm. yeah so that ability to go deep very very deep in the uh, sort of nuances of decisions from gaming where you had more time and small decisions it sounded like had a big compounding effect so that almost trained you to uh, be very deliberate in every decision you make so you have very little autopiloting and you, yeah, it sounds like you go very, very deep with your decisions always. I'm guessing that has some negative effects. Would you say you, uh, maybe that tires you out quicker? Would you say you're someone who uh, needs more breaks in their sessions as a as a byproduct of that? Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. If, if, if we think about mental fatigue, which, you know, definitely happens more to me these, ga these days when I'm older, I, I'm getting less sleep and, and there's more, more stuff going on. Um, yeah, you know, if, if I could get to the flop, randomize 60% C-bet with some hand and just move on, that would be easier than getting to the flop. And, you know, there is a lot more going on for me before each decision. Um, so, yeah, there is, you know, but I think in a way this is part of, like, why I'm passionate about poker, why I still enjoy poker. It's never been a grind for me in my life. Like, I, I love playing poker. If, if it's the kind of job where, you know, if it's nine in the evening, I'm super tired. I want to do something for fun. I would play poker. Um, like e even after all these years, I, I think that uh, keeping an open mind and not automating your decisions makes it less of a grind. And in my eyes, you know, kind of from the, the career counseling background, I think that is you know that that's worth more than money that if you're able to enjoy the game you're not automating everything you don't find it boring like if you find poker boring uh i i'm not sure that it's the right game for you like you you know i i would rather make less money you know playing the guitar than make more money and have be, be it boring play and, and that's one of the the lucky things about 
about poker, one of the amazing things you get uh, that there are a lot of fields where you can be very passionate about it and very talented, but you will not make much money. And people people live with that. Like I, I know people who make art and they need to have jobs on the side and you know they, they have to, to be careful with their savings. And, and we as poker players are like, this is like an alternate universe compared to a lot of professions in terms of the, the earning potential that you have for, for being good at this game. That's very true. Yeah. Your passion and your career can be the same thing. And yeah, I think it's a really good advice like for players as well. If they're not feeling that passion for poker, they're not excited about it. They find the game boring. You're probably in the wrong domain. You need to find something else that lights you up because poker should be fun. It should be this really exciting game. And if you're trying to fake that, or I spoke with a lot of players who've kind of been hinting on the fact that they're not enjoying the game and they think the solution is more discipline, more willpower, force themselves to play more hours. And in reality, it's like they're just not connected with the game. They've lost that passion. Either rekindle that passion and remember why you're playing this game and what an amazing opportunity it is, or you've got a long life. Go find something else that does light you up, that is fun, that you've got. Like you said, that kind of career choice, one third of your life is often spent on our kind of work life. So make it fun, make it passionate, make it something that you enjoy. And if poker does tick that box, amazing. Now your passion and your work career can be the same thing which is very unique obviously i think maybe sports people have this maybe very talented artists like musicians and stuff would have this their creativity and their passion becomes their career but there's not many people it must be on a, a small spectrum of people who can link their passions and their careers and most like you said will have to have supplement income when they have something that they do for, for fun they have to make money elsewhere which takes a lot of time and energy so yeah it's a definite privilege to be a be a poker player so for yourself, you managed your, I mentioned your psychology background. How did that impact your poker career? And for you, like, what, what are some of the things that, yeah, the kind of things you transitioned from learning about psychology into being a poker player? Um, it's fu funny that actually, I, I think the thing that most impacted my career as a poker player in my psychology study were the statistics courses that we took in psychology, uh, because, uh, yeah, we talk about uh, psych psychological studies, talk about sample sizes, and they talk about variance, and they talk about uh, how to handle large amounts of numbers. Um, and a lot of these things are very relevant to poker. Uh, the, the rest, like I said, I, I didn't practice as a psychologist in any way. The, the psychology BA in, in university is mostly research-oriented, so I can't say that like learning about the various proteins in the human brain is very relevant to, to playing poker. Neither is learning about various mental disorders, even though you know it's relevant to life. And certainly I have known players and they have mental disorders and I know which thanks to my psychology background that at, at the tables and in, in terms of playing, um, I like it, it. It would be nice to say psychology is relevant, but that that's not what you end up studying in, in university. You study a lot more dry, academic, research oriented. At least where I come from. Yeah, it's interesting that the statistics module, which is probably the most boring, worst module for most of the psychology uh, course, and you found that very interesting. And it was same for me actually. I, I did sports science, and sports science, especially degree level is a lot about research and where the latest kind of, yeah, research is, is taking performance and you learn a lot about data, again, sample sizes, 
how the studies have been shown to uh, show this performance variable in this particular sport. And yeah, I, I find that really fascinating as well in terms of yeah, how to uh, how to use data to find a uh, kind of narrative or to uh, support a hypothesis or to disprove a hypothesis through yeah, kind of studies and research. So yeah, I can relate to that one as, as well. So for yourself, from what I'm getting from you so far, we've got this risk-averse kind of personality. We've got this kind of linear progress where you're having big win rates at your games and then moving up when the time's right, not taking on too much risk and almost wait until you're almost sure that you can crush that level. Was there any roadblocks you hit in your career or were you quite smooth all the way? Was there any, or was there any defining moments where you're like, ah, that was a big jump for me, a big jump where I really made a step up in my either stakes I was playing or a big breakthrough in my career? I would say in, in terms of roadblocks, I, I never felt, felt like I was hitting a road, roadblock other than Black Friday. Black Friday for me was like led to six months of breaking even when I needed the money more and I was more frustrated. It was playing bad and, and not really know what to do about it. And in terms of uh, things that helped me, uh, one of the things that helped me a lot at the start of my career uh, was... Uh, it's funny because uh, because we were talking I, I probably before the podcast we were talking about how uh, like in, in the world of poker kind of being nice and sharing freely with people often has has big benefits uh, so I was in a Skype study group and um, yeah, I was in a Skype study group and we, we were just kind of talking freely about lots of things and uh, one of the guys uh, referenced me uh, a post from a forum where there was a, a really good player, who a poker player who wanted to learn Magic the Gathering. And he posted, like, I'm looking for a Magic the Gathering coach. I'm willing to trade poker coaching for Magic the Gathering coaching. And this guy was charging like 300 euro an hour. I'm, I'm a 50 NL player. Um, so I, I messaged him. And you can imagine his reaction. He's like, wow, the Magic the Gathering World Championship, Magic the Gathering World Champion is going to coach me. He's super happy. I'm thinking like, this guy is going to coach me. Uh, so I, I learned that this guy, is, his nickname online was Grindcore. I don't know if, if, you know, if you've heard of him. Yeah, he's Dutch, he's right? He's kind of an old school guy. Uh, yeah, he's Dutch. He's Dutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Dutch uh, as well. So, yeah, I, I know who he is. So I, I worked with him a decent amount at that point and through the years. And at that point, he was many levels ahead of me and definitely kind of opened my mind where, you know, I had a naturally exploitative approach, but he was a lot better at it than I was and, and definitely taught me a lot of things about that throughout the years. So I think that that had a fairly big effect. And, and generally just networking, just this network of friends that, that I, I had at the start and had throughout my career was constantly a huge benefit for me where all the time opportunities would come up because of someone who I'd been friends with a year before. Um, can't, I, I, I can't say like how, how much those kind of things have helped me uh, throughout the years at various points, whether it's been someone recommending a site or, uh, you know, c connecting me with someone else or talking to someone about strategy. Uh, I think in, in poker, definitely the, the GTO approach off the table is just not to worry about sharing information and being nice to people and just kind of be 
be open, be friendly, be honest. And, and it, it's such a huge world. Like you don't need to worry about, I'm, I'm going to sit at the same table with this guy. I can't tell him this huge secret. Like the, the benefits far outweigh the disadvantages. So I, I think that's kind of been a silent boost throughout my career in, in a variety of stages. But overall, it, it, it was pretty smooth sailing for me. Uh, kind of uh, other than Black Friday, I was kind of moving up at my own pace. Every stake I moved up, I, I tended to have a similar win rate to the stake before. Um, because, like I said, I was moving up way, way, way too slowly. So the, it, it's not like the, the guys at the next level were much better than me. But at the point where I moved up, they, I, I was probably better than, than the next stake by the time I was there. So I, I, everything kind of kind of smooth, chill. Uh, at least that's my memory. I don't know if I'm blocking stuff out. Because like I said, uh, emotionally, it was a roller coaster. But, but overall, it, it was very linear progress, I think. Yeah, and it sounds like the way you've almost planned your career, I'm not sure if this was a, a conscious plan from day one, but you've taken, on, you've taken on less risk, like you said, moving up very slowly relative to your skill level. With that approach, you're going to experience a lot less uh, variance and kind of ups and downs compared to most players. It sounds like for your mindset, your personality type, that was what it was a good approach. And even though it might it might look linear as we tell the story, I'm guessing for you there was ups and downs and huge um, moments of doubt, like in the short term, which might might not be front of mind right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting to know uh, your tolerance for risk. I think I'm, I'm fascinated by that topic because I think the advice often gets given quite broadly, like how much risk to take on. But you've really got to know yourself very well. And some players making them take on a lot of risk is a really really bad idea. Like the the, the knock on effects and the the potential bad scenarios are way, way too, too big. So uh, having worked with a lot of stables in the past, I know often one of the mistakes I see stables make is they push players to take on a lot of risk because they're like, don't worry, we'll cover the downside. It's no big deal. But the player himself, all of a sudden he's going hugely, hugely down and he can't deal with it mentally. But from the stables perspective, it's like, oh, just grind out a makeup, it's no big deal. But he's just took on 20K of makeup in the course of a series and now his He's really doubted everything about poker, his life, and the whole his whole um, world models came apart because he wasn't ready to take on that risk. So, uh, yeah, I think sometimes just knowing are you the person who responds well to risk. I'm kind of I in my life I've generally done well with risk, but I know my tolerance. I know when I'm taking on too much. And on the flip side, I've got lots of friends who are very risk averse, and they'll make similar decisions to you, where they'll just not take not put themselves in positions to experience any variance. So, yeah, I think it's it's the self awareness to know which is going to be a good fit for you. Yeah, I found it really interesting what you were saying about your network. And it sounds like for you, you've been a very given person throughout your career, a nice guy who's been very authentic, and you've been willing to share knowledge and share your advice. And as a result of that, you've attracted the right type of people. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, another thing like in the poker world. I think often players, well, we have two camps. One will share freely, others will be quite secretive. And yeah, I think I agree with you. And I think Ren is the same mindset of giving freely in a way to... Uh, build connections to help other people will often pay back infinitely amounts compared to uh, the short-term EV loss of maybe sharing a strategy. So uh, yeah, I found it interesting. We had, we've had quite a lot of guests on our show so far, and a few of them have mentioned you as almost like a master strategist. They class you as someone who was able to think outside the box in ways that other players can't. Would you say that was a strength of yours, your ability to uh, yeah, think outside the box? And why do you think other players would classify you as a, a good outside-the-box thinker? Um, yeah, I, I, 
I think thinking outside the box, like, like I said, throughout all the strategy games I've played, that's always been a big strength of mine. Um, yeah, both, both computer games, Magic the Gathering, like I said, you have thousands of different cards that you're making strategies from, and, and very often, like I would come up with a strategy no one had thought of, and then it would win the Australian Championship and the US Championship, and everyone was playing with the cards that I'd, I'd kind of put together in the first place. So I, I, I think, again, this, this is my biggest skill in poker, is, is putting together strategies. More, like more than I am a strong player, I think I'm a reasonably strong player, uh, but... Uh, there are definitely people I know and people who I've coached who, as far as like, if we're sitting at the table, their brain is, you know, it has a, a higher CPU than mine. Uh, and I, I had the same in Magic the Gathering, where I was the best player in Israel for a while. Uh, and I had a friend come along, a uh, young guy, and it, it was super clear. I, I'll give you guys an example. So imagine there are 20 cards on the board and you have to come up with a good game plan. So most guys, they would stare at the 20 cards that just get confused. Like they would not be able to hold all the information in their brain and that make some huge punt, even very good players. And I was able to look at the 20 cards, think for like 30 seconds, try to calculate and then make a reasonable play. And this guy would look at the cards for half a second and he'd make the best play. So this is like the, the caliber of, of processor in your brain but he had no ability to come up with strategies. He, like, like that, there are, so, so, so I think for me, um, like th this has always been my big strength uh, throughout my life is to think about the big picture, know what information is important and what is less important. You know, when, when we're working with poker, with solvers, like Rene was saying about bet sizing frequency, uh, there is so much information uh, when you work with these tools that if you're just going, even with a very fast processor, if you just go over everything, it, it, it's never going to end. And I'm very good at kind of navigating through the, like, I don't care about this, I don't care about that. This is really interesting. Uh, if I get stuck, I'm very easily moving on. Um, so I, I think this is this is like my... My, my talent in poker more, more so than, than anything else. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition, where me and Adam have created our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker. After having reached high stakes poker ourselves, we tested out this philosophy on our CFB students, which saw them rise through the ranks and double their win rate. We then took the best knowledge of that CFP program and turned it into the mechanics of poker so you can have that high quality content without the long-term commitment and often hefty price that comes with a CFP program. Now I will be teaching you the technical side of how poker really works, how to think about the game and how to consistently get better. And Adam focuses on the mindset and performance skills you need to know in order to convert all that technical poker knowledge into more consistent profits at the table. Now this program is high level. It's made for professional poker players who have the ambition to break free from mid stakes and move up to high stakes poker. 
So if you're ambitious about your poker goals, go over to pokerambition.com for more information. And there you can also find a free one hour demo of everything that is inside the program. If you have any further questions, don't hesitate to reach out. But without further ado, let's get back to more goodness in this episode. The ability to build strategies. So yeah, I think we, we talked about this concept with a, a Brazilian guest called Zinhao. And he was talking about having different almost avatars of poker players. We talked about a logical player who's going to get the GTO guy. We talked about the exploit guy who's very intuitive. And then we talked about an architect, an architect who likes to build stuff. And Zinhao himself is someone who likes to build strategies. And you sound like that kind of architect guy who likes to build out these really complex strategies. And yeah, you've probably spent a lot of time away from poker. I'm guessing that's why you've went into creating courses right now because your skill is to build these strategies, which like you said, I, I was thinking as you were talking, if I look at 20 cards next to each other, I'm like, wow, like where do you begin to start making links here? So yeah, it's a definitely a, a unique skill set to be able to come up with strategies uh, relative to that. So yeah, I can see that why that was uh, yeah, a good, good skill of yours. So Renny, I'm sure you've got a bunch of questions on creating poker strategies. It's very much in your line of expertise. Yeah, again, we're uh, very, very similar in this matter, right? This was also actually one of the reasons I went into poker coaching because what I always liked about poker was the coming up with strategy. I actually preferred studying and strategy way more than actually playing. So then I was like, hmm, how can I get paid doing what I like? So then we did a CFP. It was like, so these guys pay me to study the game and then I'll explain them what to do. So it's a perfect exchange, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I know, I noticed it as well in other games when we go play other games, and I compared it to other friends of mine. Uh, I understand immediately like how games work, basically a bit faster than others. I'm like, yeah, this is quite obvious, right? You should make this play. You should make this play, even in other games. Uh, so I think that's definitely mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a skill that has helped me as well. Um, I wanted to touch on a point that we made about brain fatigue about if you, especially if you have no baseline, let's say, for example, preflop. You, you decide preflop what to raise based on the opponents that are at the table, right? It's a decision that a lot of people already simplified because they just use a preflop chart. And they might start to think on the turn and on the river, right? Whereas it sounds like your style and more exploitative style when you try to push all edges, already preflop, you're thinking a lot. On a flop, you're thinking a lot. So the kind of the dark side of that is, uh, is that indeed you're kind of capped in how much hours you can make, right? You have probably, you never been a guy who grinded a hundred thousand hands in a month. Me neither. Like I would, I would say stuck at 40,000 40, because then my brain would have, you know, smoke would come out of my brain because of the amount of thinking I do. Um, what I then suffered with when I started to realize, so I suffered then from volume, right? I always had a high win rate, but I couldn't play that much volume because of the style. Uh, and I also noticed because I knew there was a very big range in my game, right? In the beginning, we talked about plus 15 or minus 10. These were two versions of myself that could show up. I started to suffer from some pre-session anxieties, like mm, which version of myself is going to show up. And I would try, I would almost become a little bit perfectionistic in everything around me, trying to show up at my best because I knew that that was the version of myself that would be a plus V player. And the other version was not a plus V player. Did you ever suffer from similar anxieties around performing? Yes, yes, for sure. I, I think one of the toughest things for me when I play poker is that I'm not sure that I'm a winning player. 
which is is a hard thing to say because clearly overall I'm, I'm i'm a winning player with a high win rate my entire career but you know this day or this week or this month i know there is a reasonable chance i'm a losing player um and that that's a very hard reality to deal with uh you know that that you sit down at the table and, and you lose money but it's not just that it, you lost because of variance you also lost because uh and and not just because of bad play but you lost because today you are a bad player you shouldn't have been playing um so i i think that def like that dealing with that has definitely been a struggle for me uh i identify with you like when you're saying 40,000 hands a month i don't i'm not sure i had many months where i even hit 40,000 hands um i think for for me the the area was mostly more like 30,000 35,000 a month you know you you play less tables you play less volume uh it's it's more emotional like all, all these things are are very i i can very much identify with with everything you're saying what were then some of the things you tried to do in in order to make sure that you show up at your best um so so i'll start out saying like i said i'm i'm not proud of this this has been a neglected area for me for a long time uh in terms of things that i do these days where i've put more work into it you know th these days is like the most crazy for me because uh, i have i have two kids one of them is still a baby so i get you know five to six hours sleep at night interrupted then we get up get the kid ready for kindergarten drive him there in traffic jams and everything and get back home it's nine in the morning and most guys are still sleeping they're gonna get up go to the gym whatever start playing I've I've already been up for three or four hours. I haven't slept enough, and I I need to be in a in a good mindset for playing poker. So I'm 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 still kind of figuring it out. Just uh, I think being aware that this is part of the skill set that I need is a big help. Not thinking about like it's not just about knowing how to play poker. You have to know how to handle yourself and your life how to balance these things together with poker, uh, kind of treat it like an athlete would, would treat things like you can't have three beers, eat a bunch of junk food, and then go to a basketball game. So when, when you play poker, if it's possible, which it isn't always, I, I try to have some sort of separation. So, I, you know, I'll, I will not play poker if I only have an hour and a half and then I have to run somewhere because my brain is too busy. I, I try to kind of finish as many other tasks that might be distracting me before sitting down at the table. Um, and overall, yeah, well, let me think what, 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 which other things I'm doing. The, the breaks, I try to take breaks where I am, you know, taking long walks or taking a nap rather than going on Twitter or playing computer games or stuff like that that, that I used to do. Which is probably not the best idea. So kind of trying to to lessen the load on on my mind to get to poker from a place where the rest of my life is is as in harmony as, as I can manage before I sit down to to play. And and also I'm constantly aware of do I want to play? Because very often I won't be in like my life is a bit chaotic sometimes. 
but I really, really feel like playing. I always think that's kind of a good sign, like where the passion is there and, and you really want to play. Um, you're not, not from like a downswing. I really want to win money, but, but just, I really feel like playing. Uh, so I, I try to, to pick those kind of times and just, to. Yeah, I, I don't kind of treat my work as everything. Like part of my work as a poker player is setting all my financial affairs in order, making sure the house is tidy, eating properly, sleeping properly, exercising. Like all of these are part of, of playing good poker. I don't think you can really separate them. Yeah, it's uh, I, I definitely approached it in the same way. But I, I think at some point I sort of became almost neurotic like, oh, I ate a hamburger yesterday. I cannot play the next day. Uh, so I will just study instead. Everything to avoid trying to show up and not playing my A game. And that has personally cost me a lot of volume. And like I said, that would definitely increase anxiety. Maybe also for some for some players who struggle with this. I did a lot of sessions with Jared Tendler as well. Shout out to Jared Tendler. Uh, and I remember he he gave me the example. Yeah, you think of it too black and white. He said white in this case is you being a plus five, 15 BB winner. But black, he says, you don't even know what the other side actually is. You're afraid that it's minus 10 BB, but you never showed up when you only had six hours of sleep, four hours of sleep. So how do you know? And the same if I would come back from a holiday or some, from a break, I would spend like four days studying and preparing in a way that, okay, I'm going to perform at my best. But he actually gave me the advice, which I thought was very good. He said, when you come back from a break uh, or from a holiday, just sit down and see what shows up. So you get more familiar with the bottom part of your range, like your C game, for example, and see that it's actually not as bad as you might think, right? And that really helped me when I started to see like, ah, indeed, actually, it's more sort of the anticipation of how bad my C game is than how bad my C game actually is. And that has really helped me. So maybe that's a good tip for... Uh, for you as well and for 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 our audience listening yeah and, and another thing again that i think you you can take away from from working with jared is that your c game is going to show up sometimes uh, and you can try thinking about like when it shows up what did i what which kind of mistakes did i make and the more aware you are of those you can study the situations better because i'm sure even not like Limitless in his C game will raise seven do soft suit under the gun. Um, shout out to Limitless if, if you guys saw that hand. But not, I'm, I'm sure you, you would not do that even in your D game. And, and there's a bunch of things that even us as very exploitative players where we're not going that far. And, and the more you can improve and, and kind of recognize the types of mistakes that show up, you can uh, even try to counter them with biases. Like you were saying, like if I know I'm naturally stationary and it gets worse when I'm playing bad, uh, you, 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 you can try to, to mitigate the damage. Like make this, making the C game less bad is also a form of both reducing anxiety, getting familiar with it. It lets you increase your volume. Like that, there, there's a bunch of stuff that, that can be done there. Yeah, I think he really helped me see the game as an opportunity. So you mentioned Grindcore, uh, who had a big influence in your game. Do you remember any like aha moments from coaching sessions with him that you might like to share with the audience? Maybe they have an aha moment for themselves as well. Um, I like in, in poker. I remember I, I had three aha moments. Aha, uh -huh. 
yeah, how do you say it? Aha moments. I had three. Uh, one of them was with Grindcore, one was before Grindcore, and one was with Theo Solver. Um, so if, if we start with, uh, if we go kind of in chronological order, I think the first one I was, you know, I'd started out playing NL100 when I started with cash games. And I was in kind of the mode that I, I told you guys, I think is a bad frame of mind to be in. I, I was thinking all the regulars are really good. I'll focus on a recreational and just try to avoid them. Um, and at some point, a bit down the line, uh, I bought uh, bought into like a $100 buy-in tournament, which was very big for my bankroll at the time. And when I was playing there and I was playing against a regular, something clicked in my mind where I felt like I had enough experience to know how he would perceive what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and then at, at that point, I started bluffing the hell out of all the regulars in a bunch of very believable lines that nobody ever bluffed. My, my red line shot up, and that was kind of my, my first moment where I was like, uh, you know, if, if I triple barrel this spot, this guy's going to be sure I have something strong. Uh, so I I just look not look at my cards and just blast off for, for a long time, which was fun times. Yeah, you became very good at storytelling. And I, li- I like to think of poker exactly. in a way we're, we're telling stories and we're trying to tell a as convincing story to the other person so he believes us and vice versa as well. We're always trying to think mm-hmm. what story is my opponent telling and does this story check out, which is ways of thinking about the game that I think sort of post-solver era guys kind of stopped doing because they're constantly thinking about what does my range have to do? I'm like, come on, think about what, what your opponent has, right? That's a, that's a question that is nowadays often forgotten. I think it's a it's a shame. It's a shame actually. Uh, yeah, that there there are some spots where you can tell such a believable story that your opponent will just fold his entire range. Uh, you know, there used to be more than they are now because if you play against a solver guy, he will RNG some number even if he can't imagine what you're bluffing with. Yeah, it's so tilting. I, I I almost feel like it's disrespective to the great story that I told that he didn't make the hero fold. Yes, 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 for sure, for sure. I, I, I remember one time where I ran this huge bluff in a spot nobody's ever bluffing on a board. I think the board was like ace, ace, king, uh, and, and, and some three-bet pot or four-bet pot, and I, I like shoved 200 big blinds over the guy's river bet where obviously I have some kind of boat or quads or something, and he just snap-called with a six-high flush, and I was super tilted. Because uh, he's not paying attention to my story. I don't mind if you call. If you snap call, that's very disrespectful to, to the story. It's like he's not even listening to me. Um, so, so yeah, I think storytelling is a really nice way to frame that. So, so I kind of got aware of the storytelling aspect of the game. I think that was my, my first moment where I was like, you know, one, once you start to follow the story, you can lie convincingly and you can spot other people's lies better and, and you can start, especially at low and mid stakes, like that is often enough to just be a huge winner at those stakes. Now, in, in terms of grindcore, 
the moment I had with Grindcore was actually a super powerful one. And, and you have to remember, this was years and years ago. And back then, everyone would always see that. Like, like that was how you started the hand, you see that. And he, he was sweating me in a coaching session. And I got some bored and I went to see that. And, and Grindcore told me, you know, you don't have to see that. And my brain exploded. I was like, wow, so many possibilities if I don't have to see that. And he was like, you know, let, let's think what's going to happen if you check back. And, and you know, the, the possibilities are endless once you're not in a box of that you have to do something. Uh, very, and, and I think he really opened my mind in a bunch of ways to, uh, to note-taking in general, but also just to the fact that I don't have to play spots like a robot. There's absolutely nothing that I have to do. I don't have to three-bet ace-king. I don't have to see-bet with my overpair. I can do whatever I want as long as I have good reasons for it. So that that was the, the moment with Grindcore. <clears throat> and the, the moment with Peel Solver... Uh, PO Solver was a program that I hesitated getting because I'm not naturally a computer program kind of guy. Uh, I might give off the wrong impression, but I'm not very tech savvy. So when I saw there is a program with all these complicated outputs, I, I did not really want to change my game. Everything was going well. I, I wasn't attracted to it. But when I finally decided to get it, uh, you know, PO Solver, when it came out, we didn't have preflop ranges even like you you didn't have gto preflop ranges at the start so you had to input everything and then it it came up with really weird strategies for someone who's who, who'd been playing for years before and doing well pio solver was doing some some really strange things some 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 weird shit going on and i i looked at it and i was like you know this makes no sense this is a terrible way to play uh, so I node locked the way that I would play. I ran the node lock. I saw how PO Solver would crush me. And that was my, my third moment, I think, in my career, like understanding uh, all the holes that had been in my strategy that nobody had ever seen. And kind of, you know, rather than using this to think, oh, I have to play PO Solver strategy now so people can't exploit me, I was thinking, you know, this is a really good exploit against half the people I'm playing against. So, so I'm going to do that. Uh, that's a, that's a very big one. I'm usually a very big advocate as well as when you study solver, it's mainly important to study the aggressor spots, right? Because we want to, I think you mentioned this in the beginning as well. You want to kind of know what kind of ranges are playing, what, what things people are doing. And then think about how would a human being interpretate what the solver is doing and then execute it. And that's kind of what you're then describing because then, then you will see the corrections. Like, okay, how can I then counter if, if the initial razor should do this because mm -hmm. of that, well, he's probably not doing that because a human interpretation of the solver is doing different Then what is the counter exploit to what humans are basically doing? And then you're basically found a way to exploit human implications of GTO. Uh, exactly, exactly. And very often it's actually easier to play against someone who's using a solver than someone who isn't because you know how he's going to perceive spots, how he's thinking about them. And if you're studying in this way, 
I'm all the time thinking what types of mistakes people who follow the solver are going to make. Like you said, they will bluff the river at 50% frequency because they know that's the frequency. But what are they doing on the flop? What are they doing on the turn? And then, you know, you can kind of understand, are they over bluffing? Are they under bluffing? What, what is likely going on in, in each situation? Yeah, I think a good example of that is in, in the past when I would play against Linus and OTB, Linus was, you know, trying to play closer to GTO. I remember very limited in sizings that he used, but very good in the frequencies for the sizings that he picked. But in a way, so he was very good, but you always kind of knew what to expect. Whereas when you would play against OTB, it's like OTB could throw out anything at any random given moment so on one on one way obviously they were both hard to play against but on one way i thought the otb was always like okay what the fuck is he gonna do now you always had to be very sharp and on your toes right uh i thought that that was harder sort of to play against than if someone at least stays in a predictable uh in a predictable game tree you know you know one one of the the, the moments i was most proud of in my poker career uh, again, years and years ago, I was playing Zoom 500 and I stole OTB's big blind. And I, I was super pumped that I managed to steal his big blind. But yeah, he's, he's a legendary player. Uh, I, I remember talking to high stakes guys and the, I, a friend told me about OTB. He said he's impossible to play against. He has a million sizings in every spot and they're all perfectly balanced and, and you're just helpless. Like that, that was the, the feeling of terror that, that he inspired in, in people for sure. And the, the funny thing is, this is something I thought about earlier the, this week as well, is that, you know, it, if I were playing with someone as good as OTB, I would probably try to stay out of his way a bit because, you know, you, you don't want the, the pain of, of him beating you up. And uh, the way six max works is if I stay out of his way, then his win rate goes up. That's good for him, even if he has an edge against me. You know, if if I I VPIP less when he's in the hand, um, that that's good for his win rate. So I think by being so intimidating, like Linus and OTB, they are gaining kind of win rate bonuses just by be people avoiding them. I think that there's a decent chance that's going on and. Really interesting to hear about Linus. I, I have not played with him very much, so I don't know how GTO he plays. Uh, I, I know I've seen several hands where he was certainly not playing GTO, at least pre-flop. So I, I, I was never sure either one of them, like how exactly they were playing, other than that they were obviously very good and that it was clear that they understood GTO much better than, than everyone else around them. I think that's always been been clear when you study hand histories that OTB, you know, he had a solver before PO solver was out. I think that's fairly clear. Uh, Linus has studied with a solver very, very well and he knows GTO a lot better than everyone around him at high stakes. I think that, that's also fairly clear. Uh, but yeah, I'd be interested in hearing any stories you have about either of them. I, I, I love hearing Linus and OTB stories. Uh, I think I think I've told this story before, but the nicest story I always have about Linus when he was trying to move up is when we would play a three or four handed game at let's say one k or or two k, and then when the when the table would fill with a fish, he would snap leaf and start a new three handed game. That's always my best story about Linus. He was like, fuck, fish, leave. And then battle Rex again. 
that's that's <laughs> by far my, my best story about Linus. And like I said, with, with OTB, it's just yeah, it's it's sort of the fear of that you never knew what to anticipate. What what I remember from from Linus as well is that he was very good at throwing his stack in. He would all like he wasn't that creative with the sizing that he picked, but he definitely knew when to when to shove his stack in. Somehow, always when I played a hand against Linus, it would end up with him jamming his stack in the middle of the river and me being like, fuck my life. I remember that was also a, a, a takeaway. I did then also took up on your advice. I would try to avoid playing against Linus or OTB. Uh, that was in general, guys. This is in general. This is just good advice. Uh, also in terms of, uh, I, I, I listened a little bit to your uh, conversation with uh, Doc Polk and we were talking about RTA and stuff. And I also always, always say this like, listen, if you have a very, if you have a guy who's crushing and who's playing very good, he's either very good or he's cheating. And both ways, I don't want to play with that guy. So I will try to avoid him. Uh, and also in terms of the yeah, avoiding, yeah. I think this yeah. is also very good advice uh, and something that can sometimes tilt me if you look at, for example, people following preflop ranges. Let's say you're in the big blind and you have your preflop defend chart. Okay. Well, the range that you are allowed to play is based on, you know, the opening sizing, the odds, etc. But a very important factor is your equity realization, right? How much does your opponent allow you? How much of your equity does your opponent's strategy allow you to realize? Uh, and also I have something that I call my bluff ability. So how effective can I bluff against this guy? So if I would then play against mm -hmm. OTP, who was very aggressive, same as Linus, they were very aggressive and they didn't like to the fold. Then if I have my uh, fucking 6-5 offsuit in the big blind and it's quite close, then you have to understand that versus OTP and Linus, it's probably going to lose you money, right? And I think these are ways that people who follow just solvers, they don't take in consideration the skill of execution, I would say. Right, that we're not, we're not, a, we're mm -hmm. not, a, we're we're human. I'm not gonna be able to play that hand profitably versus a player like O2B and Linus. Uh, yeah, I I I agree 100. Like, if you are worse than the guy you're playing against, or even if you're not worse and he's just like a good aggressive player, right? Like, if someone is a good aggressive player, even if you are at his level, this is gonna make parts of your range underperform, and other parts overperform. And, and it's good to account for that and be aware of that as much as you can. And, um, you know, pre-flop ranges and GTO strategies um, are definitely not the Bible in, in poker. They are they're a reference point for a toy game. Like GTO is not, is not reality. Uh, you know, a bluff is mixed on the turn if you execute it correctly on the river. If you're going to chicken out on the river, you shouldn't mix the turn because some of the river spots are plus EV. You're missing those. It's game over. Like you have to, to think things all the way through. And yeah, I, I think like you were saying in the beginning, people who focus a lot on flop sizes and flop frequencies are completely missing the fact that they're going to butcher the turn in the river. So the flop frequency is completely meaningless, you, you know, taking that into consideration. Like if I wanted to, to teach someone how to play, you start with learning how to play the river. You then go to play to learn how to play the turn. And flop is like the least important street. There, are, It's very difficult to make a flop mistake, in, like an EV mistake on a flop. Almost anything you do is okay with almost any hand on the flop. 
on the river, it's super easy to make a mistake. On the turn, it's fairly easy to make a mistake. Flop is like the least important street to study. And I feel like, you know, for people who are very organized and very linear, you know, like you're used to studying in school, you go first grade, second grade, third grade. So you might think poker goes flop, turn, river, pre-flop, flop, turn, river. But I, I think it's actually the opposite in terms of the, the effect on your win rate. So this is a very interesting point because I used to think very much from preflop to the river, but nowadays I also see a lot of benefits from, okay, what would I indeed teach? I would start with filtering out the river blunders first. So the huge pews and the hero calls and spots where they just shouldn't hero call. But a big part of my coaching philosophy as well is often people don't think ahead enough in a hand. Often, for example, if you get into mm -hmm. a hand with 5-6 offsuit versus OTB, big man button, I say, yeah, okay, we could talk about the rest of the hand, but you shouldn't have been in the hand. Any any mistake, any tough spot that will now follow is a result of you getting in the hand pre-flop where you shouldn't have been. So there, that's very important. And from an EV mm -hmm. perspective, if you look at the solver, any so on the flop, anything that you decide to put into a solver or any deviations that you make will not make any difference. But that's because... The solver, regardless of the sizing that you choose, is going to execute turn and river perfectly. And if you make a mistake, he will sort of make up for that mistake on the turn and the river. And that's why on the river, in a solver, there's no more future play, right? We don't have an ocean in, you know, we don't have a sixth card. Uh, so he can no longer make up for the mistake that you make on the earliest street. I personally always say that forget about EVs. Okay, on the flop, you don't have to look at it because they don't matter, right? It's the same as sometimes I see, oh, someone, oh, I have to float this hand 50% of the time, then they float it, and then they forget to bluff it. I'm like, oh, yeah, if you're not going to bluff it on the lady street, you shouldn't have floated it on the flop. But to mm -hmm. make come, come full circle now into a question uh, uh, for you, what do you think then, do, do you understand what I mean when I say that flop, I think is very important because certain hands lead to tough spots and mistake. Let's say, for example, you have a hand that clearly wants to bat big in order to avoid future street play. Okay, I think this is a common example. But he starts with a small sizing, which in the solver is, you know, doesn't really make big, uh, much of a difference because the solver is going to use Turner River to play it perfectly. But then often they get into S-plate scenarios on Turner River because they didn't think ahead with their hand on the flop. So from that perspective, I would say flop is most important because that's where you decide where the hand is going to go, right? Same on the turn. Let's say, for example, you have a very poor bluff catcher on the river given your blocker properties or given the type of your opponent you're playing against. Then you should think ahead to the river, realize that you have a very poor bluff catcher given your blockers or your opponent's player profile. So you should not move that hand into a bluff catch line. And therefore, you should try to bet that hand so you avoid getting in a Minus if he bluffs pets, bluff catch pot on the river. So that, in my opinion, is very important. That's an argument why I think flop is super important. But then again, if people spew the river in spots where they just shouldn't hero call, but they call it 50% of the time because that's what the solver says, I think that's also a very big mistake. But which one you think is most important? That, 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 it, it's fascinating because there are so many facets to the game because ev everything you're saying is, is su super correct. I agree with you. And and the game is just so multidimensional. Uh, I you know it, it's tough to say which is that there 
Oh, wait, why, why does it say on my screen? I'm still here. Okay, it was going to quit the, the talk. But yeah, I, I think, you know, th there are a lot of things that are important. And what I like about what we're both saying is we're talking about things that are, they have an influence on your win rate, right? Like whether you see bet one third on this texture or half on that texture is not really going to have a big effect on your win rate. But there are hands where you should be doing something else, uh, like, like you mentioned, and recognizing that will give you an immediate win rate boost. Um, River can give you immediate win rate boosts. And, and definitely planning the hand ahead. And this is also something one of my first coaches told me. I think I had like two coaching sessions with a guy who was charging $100 an hour in, in my first year in poker. And one of the first things he told me was he said, you know, before you make a flop bet, Think about what you're going to do on a turn. Think about what you're going to do, like which turns are you going to take what actions, which rivers are you going to take what actions. And that's often going to affect your flop decision. If you think ahead, maybe you decide, you know, this this shouldn't be a bet. So I, I, I think this is what you're mentioning. Yeah. It, it's, it's an advanced skill. Uh, it, it's super important. I, again, I... I, I'm not sure everyone is capable of, of thinking about it this way. I think some guys need clear guidelines, uh, but but definitely, you, you know, yeah, I, I, I can't judge which, like you have to do both. If, if you want to be very good at poker, you have to, you know, some, sometimes people come in and tell me, uh, you know, I'm on a downswing. I think it's because of this reason or that reason. Let's work on that. And I always tell them, you know, we, we're, we're just working on everything. There's no, any improvement we can make in any spot in your game is good. I don't care about your red line. I don't care that you overfold rivers or underfold rivers. We just want to make you, you know, better across the board and anything we can find. Like, like you were saying, sometimes someone will ask you about the river and you'll tell them like you should have folded preflop. I think that that's really good advice and a really good way of looking at at every hand as something holistic where you know it's not about the river decision or the turn decision it's about the underlying thought process that you have and that you use to play poker and we want to improve that so that you win more money right that that's what most guys want when they play poker, at least. Yeah, that that's in the end the goal right and with that you need a better understanding of why, for example, a preflop range, big blind versus button looks the way it looks. So if you understand the why and the mechanics, right, of how of how the range looks and how it works, then you from there you can estimate the situation yourself and come up with your own preflop range. Right. And this works for post flop as well. Oh, why does a solver like how does it generate EV by taking this sizing? Can I generate EV in the same way in practice or even in a higher way by choosing a different sizing? Right? These are, these are ways I think it's important to think about the game. I thought it was interesting that you said that uh, when I started to, on my ramble about how we should look ahead and how you know often we get in S-played scenarios where I was like, yeah, this is indeed a tough spot. You should have prevented getting in the tough spot. I think actually this is a very important skill in poker. Like I, I, I mentioned this in the mechanics as well. I say it's not that... I don't think the decision you're in now is a tough decision. And it's not like I would make a better decision. I design my strategy in a way that I don't mm -hmm. get in that spot as frequently as you do. And once you start to realize that, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, 
yeah, you get into S-plate scenarios constantly where you're in a tough spot because of the way you plan your hand. I plan it differently, so I avoid getting in these tough spots, right? Uh, but you mentioned that that is a skill. Uh, and also you mentioned the question that you believe that you need talent in order to succeed. Is that then one of these talents that that a, a player can have that other players don't that makes them excel? And what do you think are some talents that you need to possess to become a successful poker player? Um, so, so I think it, it depends on your definition of being successful. Um, like I was saying, if, if you're satisfied at beating 2-4, uh, the talents you need are different than if you want to make it all the way up to nosebleeds. Uh, but what you're describing, you know, if, if, if I talk to someone and he's talking about hands and he starts saying on the flop um, something like, you know, you know I, th this is a hand that I want to bet big uh, because then I fold this and this hand that would later dominate my hand when I make top pair. And but but this player type is this and that. So I'm going to do so if someone starts talking like that, I instantly think, you know, that this guy's making it to high stakes, right? Like some someone who's able to, to form it, even if everything he's saying is wrong, like that, that doesn't matter if he's right or wrong. It's more the the depth that he's able to analyze because I can I can teach him to to do it correctly. But if he's able to to think deeply and quickly about these spots, I, I think that's to make it to high stakes. I think to like lower mid stakes is a lot more about uh, discipline. And if you kind of play solid and you don't do nonsense plays, that is often, I, I mean, not that playing solid is simple. But you don't need to be able to do all these things. You can execute much simpler things and, and beat low to mid stakes. Uh, so so really depends, I think, what the guy is looking for. And I, I had something else I wanted to say. I, I forgot what it was. So um, yeah, did, did, did you ask something else? I'm, I'm going on, on, on I mean, tangents. to be honest, I sure. went on a little bit of a ramble, so I don't blame you. Uh, I honestly also don't remember exactly. Uh, I, I will just add something and maybe it will pop into your mind. Uh, I usually advice that I will give as well, or what I sometimes see is when a player is playing 15L, 100L, 200L, they're trying to make 5K plays while their goal should be to make plays that will get them to the next level first, right? And that's kind of, you mentioned already, just play solid. But I think we need to define a little bit, Yuri, well, what is solid? We had the yes, same conversation yes. with Jared, man. He said... Yes. Just play solid, right? And that was very good advice. But what can, can you can you try to define what solid means? Um, that that that's a really good question. Because if it were easy to play solid, everyone would play solid, and and obviously a lot of people struggle uh, at fifty nl. And I think uh, the thing you described with five k nl is an example of uh, a leak a lot of guys have where they get to the river and they're trying to think. What is my range? Which combos should I call? Which combos should I fold? Where the thought process they should be using is a lot more simple uh, in terms of, um, yeah, I, I guess this ties into what I wanted to say before. So we, we were you were talking about having a really tough decision on the river. And I think one of the things that you need to accept in poker is that each of the hands in your range is interested in the pot being a specific size. And you're not the only one who has a say in this. And if your opponent makes the pot bigger, 
you're gonna be you're gonna have a tough decision and that's unavoidable and in theory your EV is zero that's why it feels bad um, you can try to, to eke out a few big blinds with reads or whatever but but sometimes hands get into shitty spots and uh, yeah I, I, I think kind of it, it, it's tough for people to accept this when they're at low stakes for sure they're like, you know, I don't want my aces to be a zero EV bluff catcher. There has to be a better answer than that. But, you know, sometimes the guy goes check, raise, flop, bet, turn, shove, river. Your aces is a zero EV bluff catcher. Like, what, what can you do about it? There's no no way to avoid that situation. Um, so that, that, that was kind of the, the thing I, I wanted to say about that. And uh, the, the second thing, like, what the, the advice... Like I said, for, for low stakes players, um, there, there are a few different types of advice. I, I think playing solid is mostly, like I said, treating people as fish. All the guys around you as fish. You're a fish. Don't think people are super creative. Uh, there, there is kind of like basic low stakes. Don't make hero calls. Don't make hero folds. Uh, don't be tricky and slow play and randomize just bet your own hands for value um try to categorize the players that you're playing against is he an, a knit fish or an aggro fish or an aggro reg fish always try to, to think big picture i think if, if you manage to do all of those reasonably well and you have a basic strategy of like understanding the size of the pot that your hand wants so don't start being well you know PO solver will triple barrel my middle pair and over bet river because like you're not going to get those right. Middle pair wants one bet to go in, so try to play a line where one bet goes in and, and you'll be okay. Uh, if you start getting creative, check raise, over bet, shoving the river and all, all these things, uh, when you're at low stakes, you don't know how to do them well. So don't try to, to do anything that, that you don't understand, I, I would say. Yeah, that's a very important one because if you don't understand it, you in the end the execution of your strategy is going to determine your EV, right? Not the actual strategy. So if you try to follow a solver strategy yes. but you don't understand it or you don't understand a certain combo that goes into a certain sizing or a certain line, you will butcher the hand on later streets. So it's better to play a strategy that you understand, and especially also on the flop that you understand the consequences this will have on turn and river, so you execute it correctly. That's way more important. And I thought a very, very important point that people should indeed take away is think about what your hand is worth and try to get the right amount of money in. That also kind of prevents you. Let's say, for example, you checked flop, check turn, and your opponent block bets. You know, it's like, hmm, no, my, my, my hand is worth a little bit more money. So I should raise the river, for example, right? You said the middle pair, but if you played it in a, in a check, check, check line, you will find the raise river because you notice, hey, my hand is worth a little bit more money. So I thought that was, uh, yeah, that was very good advice. Yeah, I, I, I think it also often helps to understand the chaos that happens when you look at PO solver. Uh, like if you think about check raising ranges and PO solver check raises middle pair and it, it makes no sense, why would you do that? If you think, you know, middle pair is worth about one bet, but it appreciates some protection, so maybe you sacrifice a bit, you get the protection. You're like, okay, so th this is a line that makes sense for middle pair to go into. We do it sometimes. 
And then if our opponent keeps betting, we're in the shitty spot that, that you can't avoid with medium strength hands sometimes, right? Like if he he puts in too much money, middle pair is not worth very much. Yeah, also from a mental game perspective, I think this is important to understand that some spots are just close to zero EV and that's just it, right? And often the longest discussions are made around a zero EV spot where the truth is if you go right or left, either way, you know, it's probably going to be close anyway. But people just want, they, they, they want that concrete answer, right? And I think it's very important to, to what you said is to realize you're not going to get it. You know, some, a lot of spots are just going to be close to zero EV and maybe indeed you can squeeze out a read that makes it a little bit more of a plus EV call or plus EV fold, whatever. But accepting that that's going to be the nature of the spot and sort of play in line with that, I think it's very important. For, for sure. And, and kind of look for the plus EV spots. Like don't spend all your time studying zero EV spots. Like you said, you can fold 6-5 against OTB. That's a plus EV fold. Uh, if you keep looking at, at bluff catching situations and keep thinking about blockers that are worth half a big blind in a 200 big blind pot, uh, you're you're not improving as a poker player in, in a relevant way to, to making money. So a lot of good advice, which also brings me to the fact that I know that you do coaching. What made you start giving coaching you mentioned that at some point someone paid you 50 dollars for an hour so there it was purely financial but i mean you've been in, in coaching with your with your side gorilla poker uh you've run a cfp you're still running the cfp uh what brought you into coaching what attracts you to coach other players so i i think you know i i was a uh, working part-time as a math tutor and an english tutor as, as I was studying in university. So I, I, I knew I enjoyed teaching. And uh, I, I always, you know, when I started coaching random guys, which like, like you said, was from a purely, purely for financial reasons, like just the, the excitement of getting paid $50 an hour and realizing that like, hey, I, I can make a living at doing, doing this thing. And then later getting paid more than $50 an hour was a really big thing in the beginning. And what happened at some point was that uh, someone who had uh, a friend uh, called uh, Avi or, or Abraham approached me through a mutual friend and he was on, a, on an extended downswing and he, he was looking for help. And, and we, we discussed, could, could we do some long-term arrangement? Um, and at the point where I was in my poker understanding, I, I kind of had the feeling that I could help anyone become a winner. You, you know what I mean? Like I, I know the things that you need to know and you need to execute. Uh, so if, if, if I, of course I did not know the range of people that you could coach in retrospect, obviously I couldn't help anyone become a winner, but that, that was how I felt back then. Um, and then when we started doing long-term coaching, I, I thought it, it made sense to have a slightly larger group. So we started with, I think we started with three guys and we were just uh, stud like I was coaching them, but in a way we were studying together as well, because as I was coaching, like when you coach long-term, uh, you are not, this is a big difference between long-term coaching and short-term coaching that when you do short-term coaching, very often you're teaching everyone the first 
the, diff the same types of things in the first few hours. Uh, but when you do long-term coaching and you've already worked with someone for 10 hours, the next hours you're working on much deeper parts of the game and it helps you to improve a lot more as well. And so coaching for profit, I think, is one of the things that developed my game the most because I was forced to constantly, you know, I have to keep teaching these guys new things. We've been working together, you know, six hours a week for a year and I still need to teach them new things. So we keep kind of digging deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and I think, uh, you know, for me, I, I enjoy studying with other people more than I enjoy studying alone. I, I feel like something about having a, a dialogue and having feedback. So, yeah, I, I guess I, I, it, it got started that way. Uh, the, the first guy who joined Avi did, did really, really well immediately because he, he was a super talented guy. He, he just, you know, some, some people lose their way in some point, especially, you know, PO Solver coming out, you start implementing everything wrong. And even if you have a knack for the game, that could easily destroy your win rate. So you, you point, if, if you find the right people, you point them in the right direction. They, they tend to do well fairly fast. Um, so, yeah, I, I met a, a bunch of, of cool guys doing that. Uh, Re really fun stuff. I I know you have you used used to or do you still have uh, coaching for profit? I'm not sure. We used to, yeah, yeah. And 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 you stopped because it it was too much work, I guess. Yeah, too intensive. But this is also because of my character. Basically, when someone would come in, I would say, okay, I'm gonna do everything in my power, uh, in order to make you succeed. Failing was basically not an option. So I got I engaged myself that much that it became a bit too much for me. So that's why I took a step back, basically to think about myself a little bit more than constantly thinking for others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, coaching for profit, I think was not the highest uh, dollar EV thing that I could do at any point. I was never, you know, charging as much as other groups um, or there was never like a volume requirement or anything like that. Uh, always kind of trusted people to play as much as is appropriate for them because it, it's their life. And, you know, if you play when you don't want to play, I'm, I'm not sure it's a good idea. But, you know, I, I, I met a lot of interesting people, good connections, learned lots of things, working together. And I think in, in poker, just having a community and having feedback and, and talking to, to players at a similar level is, is so useful that, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think coaching is just a, a very, very pot has, has always been a very positive experience for me, just forcing me to think about things on, on a deeper level. And, and also like watching people who you've coached succeed is, is an amazing, amazing feeling. Uh, watching them not succeed is less. You, you mentioned having seen people not succeed and you also mentioned that you cannot help everyone why do you think some people you also mentioned some people just lose their way why do you think some people in your cp your experience for example why didn't some of your students succeed i, I mean in, in the end like we were saying po poker is a it's a competitive endeavor so 
that there are a bunch of things that you need in order to succeed. Uh, one of them is being able to handle swings and kind of stay stable emotionally, execute correct decisions and have good thought processes. And, you know, uh, there was a guy I knew who I worked with who went through a divorce as he was playing poker and went on a big downswing and he was not able to recover from that. Um, and, and so there, I think there's the emotional aspect. There's also, you know, some guys, uh, you, you guys know, I know you guys had Tobias on the, on the podcast. So Tobias was one of the first guys in our group, but he, he was obviously more talented than the previous guys before him. And some guys, you know, when, when you like, they felt like I was a good coach. But they see Tobias and they know they can never be Tobias. So they say, you know, maybe poker is not for me. Now they get discouraged. Interesting. Yeah. So some guys get encouraged. They're like, okay, if, if he can do this, maybe I can do this. But sometimes you're like, okay, like this guy is just sharper than I am. I cannot compete with this guy. So, you know, maybe, you know, seeing the people around you being very, very talented can be encouraging, but it can also be discouraging in terms of, you know, you realize this game is tougher than you thought it was. You realize how smart some of the people you're competing against are. And it, like we said, uh, you know, poker is not for everyone. This is not like the American dream, just work hard enough and then you'll succeed. Uh, it's very, very competitive. It, it's a food chain. It's a predatory game. And I, I mean this in the most positive way. Like not everyone can be an NBA star. Um, and yeah, if, if you're happy being at a certain place, uh, you can often get there low mid stakes, but not everyone can make it through high state through to high stakes. And I think some people maybe get that illusion shattered, even if maybe they could have made it. Like, I don't know if they could or they couldn't, but they see people around them, you know, working harder, getting things faster, and, and they, they just don't don't want to do it anymore. I, I imagine at least. Yeah, when the belief falls away, when the belief is not there anymore, yeah, why would you yeah, then then it's it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. But they, because there's there's so much variance also. Like uh the the guy who taught me how to play, who is you know, the same guy who I said had the supercomputer brain in Magic the Gathering, he's the guy who got me into poker. And he he was an amazing poker player. But his first year playing poker, uh, he ran 100K under EV. He had like a huge, and this is the first year, like this is really huge. Imagine during this year, he wins $60,000 and he should win $160,000. And he was constantly taking these bad beats and suck outs and all these things on the river and losing with his aces to kings all the time. And, you know, he, he just, he couldn't take it. He didn't want, he didn't enjoy it. So, so even your ability to, I, I think I've heard some good players say this, that part of being a successful poker player is being lucky enough that the big downswing doesn't come during your first two years, but comes later when, when you're stronger and then are able to handle it. Because if you start out and the, you know, the, the huge, I, I think I had a friend who, who ran 200 buy-ins over EV on, over the course of a year. And he, he, he went through that. He kept playing. It, it was insane to watch. He's still playing up until this day, but not a lot of people are able to handle something like that. So there's even 
just being able to handle the variance and being lucky enough that the variance comes at the correct time. Um, I, I think like that there are so many things going on. The, the support network, like does your partner support you playing poker? Do your parents and your family and your friends support you playing poker? It ha can, can have a big effect on how you handle these types of things. And I even had a friend who was, you know, he succeeded playing poker. He was doing well, uh, but he never wanted to, to play poker, uh, like for his entire life. It was, you know, he was doing it while he was in college. And when he finished, he went and, and got his dream job as a computer programmer. So opposite of me, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like that. I mean, in the end, you both succeeded, right? You both got your dream job. I I think so. I think so. Yeah. But yeah, the the, the variance is is pretty is pretty insane. I remember also a friend of mine who then showed. I think uh, it was a couple of years ago. He had a one million year, and he looked. And if you looked at this uh, win rates per stakes, he ran. I think he was a hundred k below EV on two k. Uh, so that's quite like mm -hmm. 50 buy-ins below EV on 2K and he ran they super buy. hot on 5K yeah. plus. Imagine imagine if that's the opposite. So he won a million and maybe then that was my only friend. won like 200K. My friend. My, my friend was the opposite. He ran 50 buy-ins over EV at 1, 2, and 2, 4. Moved up and then ran, you know, 40 buy-ins under EV at 10, 20, and 25, 50. And especially at that stake, it's even... It's even worse because the compound effect of that shot working out or not working out is so insane. It's like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Another big thing that I saw in RCFP is why students fail is financial stress. Um, I think if you play poker under financial stress, it's just killing. Uh, you will lose your joy for the game. You'll become very result-oriented. Bad beats are going to hurt you way less. You will get into a negative spiral. So especially earlier on in your career, being smart with your finances so you don't get into much financial stress, uh, I think it's is so key for your career to actually have a chance to lift off and become a success. Also, a very big thing that I usually see is way too big swings in confidence basically they swing their confidence swings with the variance so if they did well they feel like the best in the world and that also then impacts how consistent they are in executing their strategy studying so due to the swings and due to the confidence that goes with that they become less consistent and that uh, uh yeah that's going to impact uh maybe also game selection you know they think they're better than they are because of short-term variance uh that so seeing seeing the world or seeing your your where you are now more objectively and not having it go up and down is also very important i'm sure uh, you work with a lot of students uh adam that go with these ups and downs in confidence with the variance uh yeah i would say i've worked with a lot of players who have been struggling to deal with poker downswings and yeah it's one of those skills where it's really hard as a poker player to not be attached to your results and like you said, if you throw in that kind of variable of financial pressure and you're playing poker all day, you haven't got much of a life outside of poker, it becomes this real, almost like pressure pot where your results become your life. And yeah, a lot of players who I work with have points of their career where they'll hit a downswing or their results aren't going their way and their life just unravels. And what I've definitely experienced with players who have a lot more success, they find a way to detach themselves from their results enough that they can see the results are just a sample size. It's just variance. So there's objectivity with their results. And that's a 
there's so many skills that come into that. There's a the skill of perspective to uh, see the bigger picture. There's a the skill of emotional regulation that needs to come in so you can regulate your emotions in real time. There's like uh, Yuri talked about having your life in balance, having a good family set up. Uh, it's been good with money so you're not under pressure. So there's a huge cocktail of just solving one problem about being attached to results that, yeah, I think a lot of players would neglect this area until it hits breaking point or they just haven't developed the skills throughout their career to deal with adversity in all honesty so uh, one of the skills i try to help players build is resilience because almost no matter what career you have even though someone like yuri's had a very linear career with not as many setbacks as most players you have to learn to deal with adversity like you have to build a level of resilience in yourself so you can overcome tough times so yeah there's a, a lot of reasons i think why players struggle with downswings and results but yeah it's definitely a a skill set, various skill sets that you need to come together to uh, to kind of solve that problem. So yeah, I want to quickly transition to, uh, I know Yuri's talked about some of the kind of strategy aha moments you had. I think there was three technical points of your career where you had big breakthroughs. I'd like to know if there was any life lessons that poker has taught you. You could look back on your poker career. Is there any like valuable life lessons you've learned on your on your journey? Yeah, quite, quite a few, I think. Quite a few. Um... I think one, uh, one, hmm, let, let me think, um, hmm. so I think that the way that you think about poker hands is a thought process that I've applied to, to real life where when you think about the river and you think about a combo and you're like, you know, he would not have bet that size on a turn with this combo, so that's not in his range. So you kind of you use a, an analytical thought process about a situation by thinking of the context of everything that led to the situation. And you can use this in real life to kind of solve all, all sorts of puzzles, uh, even relationship puzzles. Like, uh, I mean, may, maybe some people do it in a more intuitive way, but... Um, yeah, I, I think I've been able to use kind of the, the poker problem-solving process in, in, a, in various areas in, in my personal life to understand what's going on at, at kind of a deeper level. Um, I think that that's one. Uh, the second one has to do with, uh, with the way I think about money and, you know, how I say I'm risk-averse, but I can only say that amongst poker players. Right, like to any non-poker player, the amounts of risk in my life, in my investment portfolio, everything uh, are are insane and hard to imagine for for a normal person. Um, you know, yeah, the, the ju just the way the poker lifestyle works, where um, I, I I sometimes think of poker as a job like. Uh, People go through these emotional swings in other jobs, but probably like 1,000 times more slowly. Like you will have a project that you do in your job over six months, and then if it does badly, maybe it's just variance, but then you might be tilted. And, and then the next project, you might start it out a bit worse and do worse. You'll be angry. You won't use the same thought processes, but everything is at a human pace. And when you play poker... You know, you just lose this huge pot. Imagine you're like a surgeon operating and your patient dies and then you're like, okay, next patient, go. Next patient, go. Like it, it never stops. It, it's a really, uh, I, I, maybe I'm not answering your question anymore. I'm just associate with 
talking, but uh, it, it, it's a really insane job, the, the types of skills and mental stamina that you develop. I, I think they, they are relevant. They help you everywhere. Um, and they, they really help you like when, when things go wrong, uh, when you don't perform well, like uh, if I make a mistake, uh, somewhere, some people beat themselves up over mistakes or like, uh, you know, there are people I know who, when they have to, to give it a lecture, or go on an interview, they're super stressed for, for weeks and months and, and poker is such a high stress environment and, and you have to learn to deal with that. I think, you know, it, it, it just develops a skill set that is very, very useful. Like I, I imagine if I were going to study something and I fail at the test, I'm, I'm not going to be too hard on myself. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to handle that very easily. And, you know, po poker, you have to be able to handle failure. You have to be able to handle uncertainty. Um, so like if, if I'm, I'm going to buy a new car, I'm, I'm not sure it's the best car. Maybe I'm making a bad decision. I, I can live with risk very, very well in, in all aspects of my life. Um, you know, during coronavirus, um, a lot of people who are not used to, to thinking about risk of infection uh, do crazy, irrational things. Um, for some guys, it makes sense. For some guys, like if you're 80 years old, obviously it's different than if you're 20 years old, the kind of risks you should be taking. But poker kind of, I think, trains you to be able to look at everything and integrate it and understand the risks and then come to, to the best decision uh, that, that you're able to. It, it's kind of automatic, right? Like this is how, this is what we do at work every day. Uh, so when an investment opportunity comes up, I don't need it to be 100%. I, I know what questions to ask. And yeah, ju just, you know, general all around Poker has a ton of life skills inside and, and you're just turbocharged. You're like living life at 100x pace and emotionally learning these things, mentally learning these things. I think it, it's super useful um, or, you know, sometimes it breaks you and, and you run away. Right? Mm. Oh, not everyone's built for it. Yeah. I think like you said, poker is one of those things where, things happen at fast pace and you've almost got to learn quickly. If you don't learn quickly, poker is not going to be very forgiving for you. So yeah, there's almost like two skills simultaneously there at the end where you talked about the ability to handle risk and to accept risk and to uh, quantify risk in varying scenarios. And then there's the skill of dealing with the consequences of failure when things go wrong, when your, your dreams don't get realized. And at the poker tables, it's almost like a daily occurrence where emotions that you've never had to deal with. So if I look at my life pre-poker, my emotional state, I could avoid most of my emotions, almost always. I could find something to do that would allow me to not have to handle my emotional state. At the poker tables, good luck. Good luck hiding from all the uncertainty, all the self-doubt. You've got to learn that skill of these emotions are coming up. You're going to have to learn that skill of dealing with your emotions or poker is not going to fit for you. So yeah, I always like chatting to players like yourself who've been in poker a long time because you've had to develop that skill. If not, there'd just be no way that you'd be enjoying this process of being a poker player at this stage. So yeah, I liked all those skills. We talked about problem solving and the ability to uh, yeah, basically think ahead and holistically about decision-making in a wide range of scenarios. You talked about money, even though you're generally a risk-averse person, but in the, in the poker context, you've learned how to manage money and ma manage risk. And then we talked about risk and consequences in a broader context. And like, like you said, with COVID, a lot of people making ridiculously irrational decisions, but it was poker players who could just say, okay, 
these, these are the options, these are the probabilities, let's just choose an option and be okay with it. There's a lot of irrational kind of, um, yeah, I guess thought processes and emotions coming up around uh, those, those times, times in people's lives. So yeah, really, really good skill. I, I'm glad you shared those. So next question is, is there anything you would do different in your poker career? You could go back maybe to a certain point. Is there anything looking back on your career so far you would do differently? Yes, yes. I'm, I, I was like, my first instinct was to say no, because, you know, I'm, I'm happy with where I am. And if you change something, you don't know where you end up. But I think the number one thing I would have done differently is been more organized about taxes. I think a lot of poker players, you know, you start out, it's a hobby, you're making a low amount of money. And if you transition to making more, and you're slow about dealing with it with accountants, it, it just the complexity of the problem grows the longer you wait. So what one big thing I would have done is take that more seriously earlier. Like it, it's all fine, everything sorted, it, it was not a big deal, but it, it was pretty stressful. It, it's, it's a lot easier to, to do your taxes in advance than to do them a few years late, Let, let's put it that way. Um, so I think for anyone aspiring to be a professional, figure out the tax laws, uh, figure out how it's gonna work. You know, when you're making 1K a month, you don't need to pay taxes, but uh, very often things escalate quickly in poker. So something to, to think about. Um, and kind of uh, in, in terms of how my career progressed, I think that, um, hmm. I, I, th I think it's hard to, to separate everything from like my, my personal development, my emotional development. So obviously in retrospect, there are a bunch of tips I would have given myself. I would have, you know, done better, handled things easier, but you, you just sometimes have to learn things the hard way. And, and you were saying in the beginning, like I had everything planned in terms of being risk averse. I, I didn't have anything planned. I was just risk averse, right? I was just scared, so I didn't move up. It was not part of a plan. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think one of the big issues, one of the big disadvantages with poker for me is that uh, poker is all the time at the computer at this kind of fast pace. And this, I have a bit of a, a computer game addiction. I'm, I'm called, like you can call it an addiction or not an addiction, but poker and spending so many hours at the computer made me often take breaks by playing other computer games. And I think in retrospect, that probably hurt me quite a lot in, in, a, in a number of ways, even in terms of just kind of being able to recover from whatever is happening in poker because you don't want to feed your brain new information you want to let it process and let it rest so i think um I, like if we're talking about mental game coaching uh, or yeah i i would i wish i would have gotten more mental co game coaching earlier than i did as soon as i did it had a big impact i think my first two hours with jared uh, which, you know, cost a lot of money for me at the time, but I, I can't stress how valuable that type of work can be for a poker player. Um, it's, it, it's really hard to quantify, but just the effect that having more stable confidence has on the quality of your life and the quality of your decisions is, uh, yeah, can't, can't say how big that is, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I guess one more thing 
in retrospect, maybe because I have a family now and I can't be a DJ and, and travel to, to live stops and MTTs and stuff like that. Uh, may, maybe I would have done that a bit more earlier on because now it's so much harder to manage. And there is this, you know, when, when you're young and single and no responsibilities, it feels like you have infinite time to do everything. Uh, but if you think of your life, just like we think of like poker is one long session, so your life is one long session, uh, you're not always going to have an abundance of time and freedom to, to do whatever you want. So like had I been more aware of that and managed my time more effectively, and played, it's sad to say, I love playing computer games. I played too too much computer games during those years, for sure. And uh, yeah, we, we, we would have changed the balance a bit in, in those respects. It's not very poker strategy heavy, what I'm saying. But uh, yeah, th th those those are my introspective thoughts, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really interesting to look back and especially uh, when you're in a position that you're happy with, it's sometimes hard to like look back and change things because everything was a process to get you to where you are now. It's hard to like kind of differentiate the process of learning to get to where you are and then things you could have done differently. Yeah, some of the ones you came up with there were sorting your taxes. I think overall being responsible for your finances as a poker player. Rene, I know you had to learn the hard way. I was the same. It's one of those things that we just get thrown into. All of a sudden you've got lots of money, which you're not used to having and you often make bad decisions, don't pay your taxes, put yourself in situations that could have been avoided with a little bit of financial competency, in all honesty. So yeah, I think learn the skill of managing your finances as a poker player with the assumption that you're gonna have a lot of money one day. Like, go, don't go in there broke thinking, okay, I'm not gonna pay taxes, who cares? Go in there thinking, okay, I want to have a lot of money, so uh, let's start thinking about a system in advance that's gonna allow me to, uh, to generate a lot of wealth. And then you talked about your addiction to games and potentially that taking away some of your time to travel and maybe play some live poker. So yeah, maybe a, a balancing effect that you needed to uh, learn over time. And then your mental game, working on mental game coaches with mental game coaches, and yeah, basically putting time into uh, fixing your leaks that are costing you the most most money. For you, it was building confidence and trying to separate that gap between your your A game and C game, which we've, we've talked about. So yeah, great stuff. All right, so going into the present day, you've just launched your course with Upswing Poker. Talk us through the, the process of creating the course and why now? Why now to uh, release that course? Um, so I started with, uh, with my YouTube, uh, page and website, Gorilla Poker, I think about two years ago. And it, it's been again, kind of a slow process cause I'm doing it at the same time as I'm doing a lot of other things. So I'm not doing advertising. I'm not, you know, creating too much content. So I have, everything's kind of been low key. Uh, and when Upswing, uh, when Doug approached me about doing a course, I thought it, it was just a great business opportunity for me. You know, they're very professional, have very big reach. So I, I get to reach a, a much larger audience, much larger audience. And they, Up, Upswing have a history of making t like long courses, like 25, 30 hour courses, which I, I never imagined I'd be able to make. So they kind of helped me think about the subject and, and understand that, that it is possible to, to make a course of that length, which I, I, I didn't think I would be able to at, at the beginning. Um, and yeah, kind of the, the process uh, for me, because I've done so much coaching, uh, once I understood kind of the structure of what I want to talk about, it, it's all stuff I've talked about a million times. 
So, so once you, you have the structure and you have enough experience, making the course was actually very, very easy. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited how people like it. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching a, a larger audience, audience than I used to. I know that, uh, Renee, you probably know this too. Uh, you know, most poker content out there is with a different focus than our approach. And uh, not to say it doesn't work. It's just a different, you know, there, there are many ways to climb the same mountain. Um, and I, I think this is like a big exposure for the, the exploitative approach that, you know, not a lot of people that are not in a CFP will ever really learn about or think about these kind of thought processes. Like you were mentioning, even like pre-flop in the course, I give people charts and then I keep telling them like, never, ever follow the chart. If you're following the chart, you're doing it wrong. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I think, think it, it, it just kind of led up to that. So, so kind of by accident in terms of timing, but, uh, yeah, re re really excited to, to see how it's received by everyone. Yeah, very exciting stuff. It sounds like a very similar path to Rene, who did the CFP, did a lot of coaching with students, and the natural kind of progression is to uh, to make a course for, for more people. It sounds like your mind was already full of ideas, and you just need a little bit of guidance to structure those ideas. And yeah, I'm sure the course will be a very big hit. And what can we expect from you going forward? Are you going to be doing YouTube content? I know you mentioned your channel. What can we expect from you going forward right now? Um, I'm, hmm, I'm, I'm not sure it, it, it's tough. There are so many things in poker I want to do. Uh, I, I probably keep making YouTube content, but that's, you know, that's like half an hour a week or, or so. It's not a, a big part of my time. Um, I'm studying a lot with some really talented people, uh, starting to learn PLO, really excited about PLO. It's a fun game. Um, and, uh, now, I was always afraid of PLO because of the variance, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm okay to handle it now. Uh, yeah, playing a lot in, in terms of make, like what I do going forwards, I, I really can't tell. It's like, um, I just finished the course. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of see what happens. Maybe I make another course. Uh, maybe, you know, I start playing nosebleed PLO. Maybe I go play live. I, I, it's really tough to say. Um, I just like what I love about poker for me is uh, each of the options that I'm saying all sound exciting. So mm -hmm. I'm happy kind of any, any way the ship sails, I'm happy. I love that. I, I get that feel from you that there's many options that you could take right now, but all of them seem very exciting to you. Whether it's making new courses, whether it's playing nosebleeds, whether it's coaching more people, they all seem very yeah in line with your passions. And as we've talked about throughout this conversation, you, you've loved poker, you've loved your whole poker journey. So yeah, whatever comes next, as long as it fits that need of, I enjoy what I'm doing right now. Yeah, it's really, really refreshing to hear someone who's so excited about their, their paths and there's so many opportunities for you, you're going forward. Great stuff. So Renny, have you got any further questions that you'd like to throw Yuri's way? No, uh, I think uh, I think we, we've we've talked for quite a while, right? Uh, I definitely I definitely uh, understand what Yuri said. Like creating a course, it's not once you finally have kind of stripped down what you're gonna say when you're gonna say, then actual the making it, the recording it is not that hard. But it's like, okay, how will I structure this? What things should I discuss? What are the most important topics? Uh, that's kind of the that's kind of the tricky part. And in regards to the to the exploitive stuff, it's it's a bit more uh, special, I would say, indeed. And people are 
a bit more skeptical about talking about it. For example, if I make a YouTube video I or do a Twitch stream, I prefer to just talk GTO-ish because it's broad knowledge. You know, you're not giving away too much. When you really go on the exploitive train, I can go very deep in certain thought processes that, you know, are very different than what you will see out there. So it's a bit more, but I save this for special people, right? I save this for our mechanics of poker uh, students. They get they, they get to know that. And I think that, uh, yeah, that that that's kind of how it is. And indeed, that usually is reserved for CFP. So it's good that it now is becoming a bit more mainstream. Um, I, I, I will say like when making the course, I had this kind of thought that if I describe an exploit in a big course, then kind of the ex you kill the exploit, right? It doesn't work anymore because everyone knows about it and then you, you don't have confidence to do it. So in the course, I, I mostly, I think I, I teach how to, how to go about building your own exploits more than I, I teach a specific exploit. I get people into the frame of mind and give them the tools. So that when they study on their own, they are they're building exploits, they're thinking about things in, in this kind of way. And uh, yeah, definitely when, when playing online, you can't you can't play exploitative at, at serious stakes and, and, and stream it everywhere. That's like suicide, I, I feel, for your game. Yes, that's not a great idea, right? The the costs are too big then. But I, but we do the same. I mean, that's why it's called the mechanics of poker. The focus on the mechanics of exploitation is way more valuable than oh, here's a here's a sheet of data. Uh, big blind versus EP triple barrel gets bluffed twenty four percent. It's like okay, memorize this. Yeah, that's not really useful, right? And these things change. So everything that we try to make in the mechanics, I try to make as timeless as possible by really focusing on broader concepts. You know, it's like, oh, how do you find an exploit? How doesn't how does a range imbalance uh being how can I explain this? What is like the range construction error that leads to an overbluff spot, underbluff spot? These are way more valuable concepts than just saying like, oh, do this exploit here. Oh, always bluff catch here. Oh, this is the percentage the population bluffs in this spot. So way more timeless approaches. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, I'd love to study with you sometime if you still do that. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm always up for it. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Any any last things you uh, still want to add to uh, to the pot? Uh, let me think. So uh, first, it, it's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Really enjoyed the, the, the call. Um, I, 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 it, it's fun to find someone like you, like we said it. Sounds sounds like we think about things very similarly, so not too much. You know, you, usually you have to to qualify exploitative thought processes a bit more. People have this inner objection, like how can you fold it if it's in the chart? How can you bluff if it's minus EV? What if the other guy does this? I, I think you know we're both on the yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I have this metaphor where like imagine you're floating in the sea and GTO is like your life raft and you're holding on to it and you think as long as I hold on to this, no one can hurt me and I'm safe. Uh, an exploitative poker, like you let go, you learn to actually swim and, and you learn like how, how the game actually works. And like you can play your entire game holding the life raft, but, but it, it, it's, it's not much fun. It gets boring. You get the same view all the time. 
while the the style that, that we both teach and we both play poker is such a creative game that you can never get bored you keep enjoying it and being creative and having fun and uh, yeah kind kind of a never-ending process like every day you can find new things every hand is interesting it's never like oh this, this play is standard or that play is standard oh not never but you, you, you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so yeah yeah just, just fun talking to you guys uh like, like you were saying i have a new course out uh on upswing elite cash game exploits uh anyone who's interested check it out i think it's really good but uh and yeah thanks for having me all right well that was a nice conversation i i always end in the same ways right oh what what a lot of knowledge what a wisdom bomb has been dropped upon us and every time it's the same this time even longer than normal but that was just because our guest was just feeding us with good information and me and adam were talking we could hop on a call tomorrow and do a part two of another three hours because i listed a bunch of questions that i didn't even get to ask uh, so if people like like this podcast, then uh, maybe in the future we'll take a take a part two. What were some of the things that really stand out for you, Adam? Well, where to begin after that three-hour marathon of knowledge? I'd say one of the first things that came to mind for reflection was how much Yuri thinks about balance in his life. And he's very particular of trying to create the life circumstances that allow him to perform well. He talked about having like kind of polar opposite games that can show up. One way is like a plus 15 winner winner and a minus 10 loser. And when you've got that kind of variability in your game, you need to pay a lot of attention to creating the life circumstances, whether that's sleep quality, stress management, so you show up as your best self. It sounds like over the years, he's got better and better at that skill set and find that balance so you can show up as his best self more often. He also talked about spotting a lot of the tendencies that show up. And for him, he's talked about it one way. He said, if he doesn't want to pay his bills, uh, then he, he shouldn't be playing poker. Me and Reddit both thought we, we would never play because paying our bills never seems interesting or doing taxes, whatever. So uh, yeah, I think it's finding unique things for you, but it's obviously for him, he knows a certain state of mind would link would lead to bad performance. So he's aware of that going in. Next thing we talked about was, um, or next thing that came up for me, was risk aversion. And very interesting how we even kind of talked about this in the poker context. You, you can only talk about being risk-averse to non-poker players, really. Uh, sorry, to poker players, really. But his ability to navigate to high stakes whilst being very risk-averse. And as we could see, as we went through the kind of story arch, there wasn't many big setbacks. He didn't have a, like a 30, 40, 50 buying downswing. He didn't have to rebuild his role because he built his kind of progression around being a risk-averse personality. So uh, a lot of that would, it was a slow journey. It cost him opportunity costs of playing higher earlier. But he knew he didn't couldn't tolerate high risk. So he designed almost like subconsciously originally, but he designed a path that was a low variance. So he was able to navigate a high risk environment like poker with a low risk tolerance. So if you're someone who has a low risk tolerance, you could maybe listen to the parts of you speaking about that to get some tips on how to approach poker with a risk verse approach. And then finally, mental game, you give a big shout out to Jared Tendler and working on his mindset and basically said, for himself working on building confidence has been one of the biggest things for his win rates and again as we talked about he's a very exploitative intuitive player he thinks very very deeply about spots and when that's firing amazing he's got an awesome win rates well that's not firing he's almost like spewing off so with that in mind 
he's very susceptible to these big swings in his game, this big variation. So the mental game is going to be huge for him and his ability to stay confident in his players and show up as his best self during his grind is going to be huge. So uh, yeah, a million other things I've literally got. Probably 13 other topics I could have talked about, but they're the main ones for me. How about yourself, Renny? How would you summarize the your main findings from Yuri? Yeah, I mean, we we rambled a lot about strategic poker, right? Uh, and it was mainly rambling. For me now, it's, it's a bit of a big blur. Uh, but there was a lot of knowledge in there for sure. He also talked a lot about networking, right? About getting the right amount of people, the right people around him. Also from a strategic perspective, I think he also mentioned like, oh, being told on which sides to play. Oh, a good side opportunity came up and... Because of his network, he had first choice to go play on that side, for example, when the games were still good. Uh, I loved the everyone is a fish uh, example. And I think often, I think almost all players have had that when you move up to a new stage, you think, well, here they're very good. But he generally gives people just very little credit, right? He even says, I'm a fish as well. So uh, I think that that was a very interesting one. And in the end, he's, he really talked about... Uh, exploitive play uh what did he say right he's in the ocean and you hold on to this um to to to, to this to this life jacket or uh, whatever to this floating device but when you and then you then you try to swim that's when you learn exploitive poker and he mentioned the two words then it, you can express your creativity and then it's a lot of fun and these are two values that uh that i that i hold highly as well in poker and and just in general the the building strategies i love the magic example and even my mind went like oh wow how cool is that so people play a certain deck and now you're going to try to put the deck together that counters that deck i haven't played magic in years 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 but immediately i felt sort of a spark inside me that was like oh cool to to develop a strategy like that uh, so yeah, really grateful to have him on. R really grateful as well that he invited me to uh, to do a study session together. So uh, let's see if a little uh, poker bromance comes out of this podcast. Uh, the 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 exploitive guys uh, hanging out together. So that would be great. Yeah, and I want to thank everyone if you made it to the end. Hashtag dedication, right? Three hours of listening. Uh, but given the amount of knowledge that was in this pod, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure it flew by, or at least for me personally, it didn't feel like three hours at all. It was like, oh, fuck, we're already at three hours. Shit, we have to wrap it up. Um, as always, guys, much appreciated that you have joined in and see you in the next episode. Now, if you learned something in this episode, we would much appreciate it if you like and subscribe. Leave a comment with your main takeaways. Give us a five-star rating and follow the pod. This way we can reach more players and help them reach their big and ambitious poker goals. And if you want us to help you get to those goals, go over to pokerambition.com to find out more.